0: Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome, and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Hello, everybody. My name is Donnie B, and I am your host and moderator for tonight's epic debate. We at Standing for Truth Ministries are dedicated to defending the truth of biblical creation, we also strongly believe in critical thinking. And one way we like to promote critical thinking is by hosting some really awesome debates. This ministry has now hosted over 200 debates on all sorts of topics. And so if you enjoy this content, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. And also please share around this content as the truth is so incredibly important. Now tonight we have an important debate between John Crawford, Reverend John Crawford, and Pastor J.D. Martin on soteriology, but more specifically, lordship salvation versus free grace theology, what is true biblical salvation? Uh, Gentlemen, Pastor Martin, Reverend Crawford, thank you so much for being here and giving us your time for this important debate.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having us. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Great to be here.
0: My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this ever since we scheduled it. The audience is really looking forward to this one as well. You know, we've got two very knowledgeable, well-studied individuals. And so before we get into any opening statements, why don't we just kind of get to know you gentlemen a little bit, uh, break the ice. And why don't we start with you, John, since this is your first time here debating on this platform. Again, thanks so much for, uh, you know, being willing to engage this discussion. A little bit about yourself.
2: Okay, great. Uh, Yeah, it's great to be here. I know we've tried to do this debate several other times and it seems like we never could get it together. Uh, I know J, uh, JD was busy. I was busy and just different things going on, but if we finally made it, we're here. Uh, so, uh, we praise the Lord for that. And thank you for having us on here. This is a, a great opportunity to, uh, just to come share what the different views are to educate people, but most importantly to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why we do this. That's the number one reason. Uh, but about a little bit about myself, I, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home per se. I was raised in a very loving home by my mom and grandmother. Uh, And I went, I attended church as a kid on and off. And uh, when I was 15 years old, I was at an FCA, a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting. And the guy presented the gospel and I got convicted of my sins and I realized I needed Jesus. Uh, And I did, but I didn't totally understand everything at that point. I didn't go forward. Later, I received Christ into my life when I under, first, you first know, really understood the gospel and received his grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation into my life uh, in 1986. I think I was 15 years old and uh, then went through several years of um, trying to figure out what God wanted me to do. And later I was baptized. Uh, and so uh, then he called me into the ministry in 1997. And I accepted that, of course, I ran for years because it's not many people that want to be preachers, obviously. Uh, and so I eventually realized, hey, this is what God wants me to do with service to follow him, uh, not just sit back and be saved, but to actually follow him and serve him. And so I do believe in that. So I began to do that. 1997, I attended Fruitland Baptist Bible Institute in Hendersonville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. got a two years uh, associate degree there. I later went to Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, attended a year, finished my bachelor of arts online at Trinity college of the Bible in Newburgh, Indiana, and received my BA there, uh, in Christian apologetics and philosophy and theology. And then I attended, um, Liberty university online and received my master of arts in theology. And then finally, uh, a master of divinity from Liberty. So, uh, I think after that, I'm going to stop. So I haven't uh, <laughs> pursued any further education. But I pastored for several years during those times on and off. I did evangelism, radio evangelism, uh, also just, just some DJ work on the side. Uh, I played drums at a pra- several uh, praise and worship bands, too, as well. Uh, but now I'll just devote my time to Point of Defense. That's my channel if you guys want to check it out. Uh, I do a lot of apologetics there and sound doctrine. Uh, like what we're going to be talking about tonight and discussing, debating tonight. And so um, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just excited, just going to be uh, looking forward to uh, the discussion tonight.
0: Awesome. John, I really appreciate that uh, introduction. I do have your relevant links in the description box, as well as uh, Pastor JD Martins. So, you know, to the audience, if you like what you're seeing from the uh, debaters tonight, please check out their their channels. It'll be worth it, I promise you. So, Mm -hmm. JD, over to you. Thanks again for being here. You've been here in the past. You're always so gracious with your time. How you been? A little bit about yourself and your channel.
1: Yeah, I've been doing uh, great. I'm so glad to be back. I've been kind of um, uh, taking a break from the online ministry for a little bit. So it's good that uh, Donnie kind of called me out of semi-retirement and and to minister in this space. And I really appreciate it. I am an actual pastor of a a real uh, Baptist church. I was saved at 15. I won't go into much of that, but I was saved from a life of gangs, drugs and immorality uh and then uh god just radically converted me changed me uh, maybe a new creature we'll talk about that a little bit in the discussion not my testimony but about uh, regeneration and what that looks like um and now i've just been trying to serve him in whatever capacity that i can so um i do bible studies um i have five kids um but just all kinds of various ministries i have the online ministry it's called exploring theology it's on youtube and i'm constantly doing debates like this i love debates um and all of these things that i hope that they can benefit the people of God. It's not just an intellectual exercise to see two people slug it out theologically, but that we can actually be driven to the word of God. And ultimately we're better people, better Christians because of these kind of debates. So that's my heart. And I look forward to the debate.
0: Pastor JD Martin, I appreciate your introduction as well. Again, reminder, the debaters relevant links are in the description box. So let's go over the format. Uh, real quick before we get into the opening statement. So we are going to be having 15 minute opening statements. We're going to be starting with uh, JD Martin, then we're going to have an hour discussion. Okay, so it's going to be free flowing, but we do want to structure it a little bit. And what we agreed to do is we're going to break it up into 15 minute uh, sections or portions where uh since pastor martin will be starting that means we'll be hello <laughs> that means well it looks like it's a two-on-one uh john uh, hopefully
2: uh <laughs> hey i'm outnumbered that's not fair <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um yeah we'll be having an hour discussion we're going to break it up into 15 minute blocks and uh we'll have jd martin he'll lead the way For the first 15 minutes, and then we're going to go from there. Then we're going to have five-minute closing statements. And then, of course, as always, we're going to have an audience Q&A. So this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. And uh, just please make sure you're tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth. And that way, I won't miss them. And, of course, let's do our best to keep them on topic. The topic tonight, free grace or lordship, what is true biblical salvation? Pastor J.D. Martin, we're going to hand it over to you. Whenever you're ready, you've got 15 minutes.
1: Let me just set my time and let's go. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about real quick here is the title of the debate, Lordship Salvation versus Free Grace and Whatnot. Personally, I cannot stand uh, these titles because I think they're completely misleading. Oftentimes, people will say Lordship Salvation is making uh, Christ not just your Savior, but your Lord. And and that's just utterly ridiculous, and that's not what it is about at all. It's nothing to do with Savior versus Lord or anything of the sort. Um, Also, the title, Free Grace, is kind of stacking the deck to uh, my theological opponent here, uh, because grace, of course, is free. Grace is unmerited favor. So, of course, grace is free. And so it's really not having to do with any of that. Last thing, uh, by way of uh, just housekeeping here in the beginning, um, I do not believe in works-based salvation. I believe that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, what do I believe? Cuz that's what I don't believe. What do I believe? Here's what I believe. I believe that when we are born again, we truly become new creatures in Christ and we are changed. And um I'm pulling this from various scriptures. Here's a couple second 2 Corinthians 5:17 says therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So being in Christ, you are transformed. You are a new creation. You have become a new person. The old man has been slain. A new man has risen. As our text says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In John chapter 3, we have the scene of, of Nick at night. We have Nicodemus talking to Jesus. And Jesus says these words to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born is spirit is spirit. So from here, we know that this is just an absolute fundamental truth for all believers. Everybody who is saved, everybody who's going to end up in the kingdom of God, that is the new creation, has to be born again. Okay, And so, to be born again, you need to believe. So, as we believe, we are born again, just as we came from our parents' flesh begotten flesh. So, the Spirit begots a new man, a new spirit, a new person inside of us. Now, what does this really mean, though? Is this just a metaphor, or what exactly does it mean to become born again, to become this new creation? Well, Ezekiel 36, which Jesus is alluding to tells us what exactly being born again entails or what does this communicate to us here's what he says in uh, the word of god says in ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 it says i will sprinkle clean water on you and i will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness that's forgiveness of sins so part of regeneration and in, in the Bible says elsewhere that we were saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the, the way that we're saved is our filth is washed away by the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. So he says, I will cleanse you with this clean water from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the changed person, the changed dispositions, the changed loves. He says, I'm going to remove the heart of stone that stony heart that loves sin and hated righteousness and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh a heart that's sensitive to God that loved God and is concerned about following his commandments He goes on to say, not only will I change who you are, but I'm going to put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. A lot of promises here, a lot of wonderful things, but I don't want you to miss this. Just as this passage says that when regeneration happens, you become a son of God many has received him. He gave the right to become children of God. So you become children of God. God becomes your father. You become his child. And just as you are given a new heart, new disposition, new spirit, and just as you're cleansed from your sins, it also says right there in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you, his Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You can't have it one way. You can't say, well, regeneration is how I'm saved and I'm cleansed from sin and how I become a part of the family of God. And, and I have a new heart and a new spirit but that doesn't necessarily mean that I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules no that's exactly what the bible says that regeneration will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and and really that's what this is what the debate is about it's not about this term lordship or free grace or anything it's about whether that statement is true when god changes you when you get that new heart with a new Uh, new heart, new spirit, and the Holy Spirit's within you, cleanse of your sins, become a child of God, will he cause you to walk in his ways and obey his rules? Or is that merely an option? Is that merely an addition? Is it nice, but not necessary? Is it nice, but it may not be there? And I'm gonna argue, no, it's not just nice, but it has to be there. It will be there. He says, I will cause you, not I will try to cause you, and I hope you will get there on the other side. And that's really the debate. And as we get you know, lost, and I'm going to show some more and on that, but I just want you to focus in on this debate on what my opponent is really saying. And from my perspective, the free grace position says that that is an option. Following Christ is an option. You don't have to do it. You could be a Christian and never do these things. And I'm saying that's baloney. That's false. It's not healthy, and it actually causes people who should be uh, afraid and should be wondering if they're saved to think that they are saved, and that's why it's such a dangerous teaching. All right, so let's go over to Jesus. We are Christians, right? We have his name. We call him Lord. We call him Savior. We call him Master. We call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? So if you're going to be a Christian, you better believe what Jesus says. And so this is not what I say. This is not what a theologian says. This is not what a camp says. This is what Jesus himself says. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets. who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, what is the sheep's clothing here? The sheep's clothing is, Baha, I am a Christian. I am saved. Jesus is Lord. I believe all of these things. Sign a dot here and there. He says, be careful because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we'll talk about that in a second, actually is a true believer. Some people come in sheep's clothing, I'm Mr. Christian man, but actually are in fact false prophets and are ravenous wolves. Now, that's terrifying, right? I mean, everybody's seen Little Red Robin Hood, where uh, the, the wolf eats the grandma, then hides in the grandma's clothes and is about to eat the little girl. I think I got my Disney or whatever my fables, right? Um, that's terrifying. We don't want to get eat up. By the wolf. So how do we identify these wolves hiding out in sheep's clothing? Well, he tells us, he says, you will recognize them. That's the wolves hiding in sheep's clothing, claiming to be Christian. How? By their fruits. And that's Jesus. That's not J.D., That's not John MacArthur. That's Jesus. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, some Christians say, I'm not a fruit inspector. Well, Jesus told you to be a fruit inspector. Jesus told you, you will know true from false based on their fruits. Then he gives you these examples from creation. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I've recently have a garden out here. My uh, mom planted this beautiful garden. We have all these Uh, beautiful, uh, fruits and those kind of things. I can tell you, this is true. You don't go to a thorn bush looking for berries. That's not where you go. You go to the berry bush looking for berries. She says, you go to thorn bushes to look for figs? No. Are you grapes gathered from, you know, the, the weeds? Of course not. You grab good fruit from good plants. And he goes on to say, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, be a fruit inspector. Jesus says, you know how you can tell the true from the false? You know how you can tell two Christians who say, I love Jesus, and the one who's actually going to hell and the one who's actually going to heaven by looking at their, not just a profession, because both of them say, I love Jesus, but looking at their works. If there's a bunch of disease fruit, if there's all of this corruption everywhere, going around and declaring that that's actually a good tree, that's just going to lose its rewards or something like that is false teaching. It is not true. Okay, if you ever go to an orchard and you go and you're picking cherries and you see this tree and it's diseased and it's nasty and it's gross, you don't pick fruit from that tree. You say, I'm picking from the good tree. This tree needs to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. Is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the fires of hell. Now, we'll talk to my opponent. Does my opponent agree with Jesus? Not me. Does he agree with Jesus? Does he agree that every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be chopped down and go into the fire? Or is he going to say that some, in fact, won't. They'll just lose rewards or end up in heaven. I don't believe it. Matthew chapter 7, right after this, he goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Lord, Lord? How do you get saved? Anybody know? How do you get saved? Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Two parts there, but it's really only one. You got to confess and you got to believe. But guess what? I can't tell your heart, can you? Well, can I? No, I cannot tell your heart. All I can see is your lips. And if you say that you believe in Jesus, I'm going to in charity believe you unless your works tell me otherwise because you're living like the devil. Well, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord has confessed in their heart. They confess with their lips, but have not confessed in their heart that Jesus is Lord. And then he tells you that these people do amazing things. They tithe their money. They go to church. They listen to theological debates. They hate Uh, all kinds of sin out there. They hate all of these things, right? They vote Republican, whatever it is, whatever you think is holiness, they do all of those things. And Jesus says to these people, one day, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does he point to? He didn't say that uh, there was something wrong with their system of doctrine. He didn't say anything that he says, look, you are a sinner. You are a worker of lawlessness. You are going to hell. Now, again, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with Jesus, if you're offended by that. Jesus says you are a worker of lawlessness, so you do not know me. You deny me by that, which you do. Now, there's a longer passage, which I'm running out of time, so I don't have time to get into. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives this parable about when the Son of Man will come into glory. And he says that he's going to divide the nations, and he's going to put the sheep on one side, and he's going to put the goats on the other. And here's what Jesus says he's going to say to those who will inherit the kingdom of God. He says this, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. These are works, guys. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. What is he pointing to? He is pointing to their work. Now, if you have a problem with this, you have a problem with Jesus. Jesus points to works at the Final judgment. I'm not doing that. Jesus is doing that. And then he looks over to those on his left, those that he's going to cast into the eternal fire. And he says, when I was hungry, you gave me no food. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you did not visit me. I was naked. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not visit me. What does Jesus point to? Jesus points to their works. You have to deal with this. You can't explain this away. You can't say this doesn't have to do with hell. Yes, it does. He says at the very end of that passage, these will go into eternal uh, punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is not about losing rewards. This is not about people thinking bad about you. This is about whether you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. And guess what? Jesus points to their works. Now, we can't explain this away. Here's how this works. It's very simple. James explains it in James chapter 2. Faith without works is what? It is dead. Faith without works is dead. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself It's a gift of God, not of works. We're not saved by works, but guess what? We're saved for works. We are saved for works. Christ redeemed us, changed us, cleansed us, made us new creatures to cause us what Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us, to cause us to walk in his ways. And so the litmus test of whether or not you have actually been changed by God, whether you've actually been sanctified by God is if your life looks different. You can claim I and Jesus are cool. I'm a child of God. I believe in Jesus. I've confessed his name, all of these things. You can claim that all day, but guess what? If the Holy Spirit is not inside of you, you are a liar, and it is not true. You are not, in fact, a Christian. And that's why we can look at works to tell the the uh, state of the tree. And the state of the tree is determined by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I hope you understand that. The state of the tree starts off bad. We all start off as sinners. And the Holy Spirit comes in there and he takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. That's what Ezekiel 36 says. And he puts his new spirit in. And guess what? That new good tree is now going to produce good fruit. And what happens when you look at that tree and all you see is bad fruit? Guess what? That means the tree has not been converted. The tree is not saved. And that's really what I'm saying. I'm saying that a good tree will necessarily happen when God does a work in you now. Does that mean every Christian will be equally fruitful? No. Does that mean Christians will never sin? No. But it does mean that tree will be changed. And my big concern, the thing that breaks my heart is to think that there are people out there who are living like the devil, who are claiming to be a Christian, who should be looking at these passages and should be scared to death because they look at their lives and say, yes, I honestly am a wicked and vile person. Yes. First Corinthians six, who says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit of the kingdom of God and gives you this list. And you say, that is me. You should be afraid. You should be counting the cost. You should be repenting and turning to Jesus and say, God, I want to make my calling and election sure. And that's really what I'm trying to do is call you to make your calling and election sure so you can make sure you're saved. And how do you get saved? Cry out to his name. And that will necessarily produce good fruit. Thank you.
0: Thank you, JD. Perfect timing and 15 minutes flies by, I know. I've already got a ton of questions coming in. So I am uh, doing my best to everybody in the live chat to catch up on them. So just make sure you are uh, tagging me, as Standing for Truth, and then that'll be uh, the best way to prevent me missing your great question. So, okay. Reverend John Crawford, we're going to hand it over to you now. And let me just restart the timer. You have uh, 15 minutes for your opening <sighs> okay. statement. Whenever you're ready, go ahead.
2: Okay. I don't have a timer. So I'll just depend on you to tell me when I have like maybe a couple minutes. Perfect. Okay. We ready? Okay. Good to go. Good. To All go. right. Uh, actually, I agree with most of what my opponent said for, until the middle part about works and works having to prove your salvation. Nowhere does the scripture teach that. Uh, now, as far as labels, free grace, lordship, uh, I'm not a fan of labels either, but unfortunately we have to use labels like free grace, like lordship in order to uh, to show people what specific theological systematic views are. That's the only reason we have them, free grace, lordship. No one is saved without God's grace. It's God's grace that does it all. There's no works that front load the gospel. There's no works that back load the gospel. Jesus Christ either does it all or he does none of it. It's him that does it all. He makes the change. He's the one that puts the Holy Spirit in an individual's heart when they trust and believe in him alone for for salvation. It's not works. Works have nothing to do with getting someone saved or keeping someone saved. That's heresy. It's false. And we can discuss more about that. Now, historically, the expression free grace was actually used both by Calvinists and Arminians in history. Uh, For example, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, preached a sermon called Free Grace back in 1740. Charles Spurgeon also had another sermon entitled the same thing. Now, these sermons were responses to people that criticized the faith alone message of the gospel. And I'm here to argue that the only way a person is saved true salvation is deliverance from sin, from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And the only way one can do that to be born again is to receive and put trust alone in Jesus Christ. It's not promising to commit, to surrender, obey. Uh, It's not turning from sins because no one can do that. The unregenerate person cannot do that. That's heresy. It's asking an unregenerate person to turn from sin, something they can't do. And the problem with that is if you go with that version of repent, that means if I have to turn from my sins to get saved, what about when I sin after I'm saved? Am I turning back to my sins again? Does that mean I'm lost? You see, that doesn't work. It just that systematic doesn't work there. So I'm just going to give you just a, a, a brief summation of what free grace theology is. There's a lot of misnomers and straw man fallacies and ad hominems that, that are used to attack free grace. And so I'm here to defend that belief. And as I go through this, I want to be able to hit some of, the, uh, some of those and explain and refute what some of those are. Now, first, free grace teaches that the grace of Jesus Christ is absolutely free. People talk about cheap grace. Well, that's an oxymoron. You can't put cheap in grace. God gives nothing cheap. And just because someone sins is not cheap in God's grace. Uh, in fact, The the word, you know, charis in the Greek uh, is is grace, which means it's free. It is a gift. It's totally free. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor. Now, someone in the lordship view speaks of costly or cheap grace, and that's just totally false. Uh, There are those that believe a faith plus works or a faith that works. Uh, You know, that's a mixture between Arminianism and Calvinism. Both of those are totally wrong. Romans 3.24 tells us being justified freely by his grace, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21.6, I will give to him who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Revelation 22.17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. There's no cost to it. And people that criticize the faith alone message want to add works, they want to front load the gospel, you know, you gotta repent, you gotta to promise to commit, you gotta do that. That's that's false. Salvation has nothing to do with that. That confuses salvation with discipleship. That's a completely different thing. Now, free grace simply means also that the grace of salvation can be received only through faith alone. Not faith plus works, not faith and works or a faith that works. It is a faith alone message, believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believing he, that he died on the cross for you, rose again, and you apply that to your own life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace have you been saved through faith and not that of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. Notice that, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Romans eleven six and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it uh, it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. That's a mouthful. Paul's saying basically it's got to be one or the other. It's either works or grace, or it's grace or works. Well, it's grace if you're saved through, through faith alone. Uh, now, notice uh, the lordship camp typically teaches that you have to do all these things uh, to get saved you know you got to surrender you got to commit you got to uh, what pray a prayer whatever it is a prayer doesn't save anyone it's not the prayer that saves. jesus christ is the object of faith alone he's the one that does the saving uh, ephesians 1 13 uh, 13 and him you should uh, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and whom also having believed having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed there means ownership. When God gets a hold of someone and saves them, he has ownership of them. It cannot be lost regardless of what happens. Uh, John 1.7, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him and there's also a plethora of other verses I don't have time to go through Act 1631 believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved I mean it's all through the scriptures Romans 5:22 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ to whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Justified justified by what? Surrender? Commitment? Making Jesus the Lord of our lives? No. Justified by faith alone. Now, let me just uh, throw in a quick illustration here. Let's suppose I'm going to jump from a building into a net held by three different men. One of them is a dentist uh, that t- takes a-, a hold of the-, the corner of the net. The other is a mechanic uh, that takes a-, a hold of another part of the net. And the other is an airplane pilot on the other end. Now, I'm going to trust them to catch me when I jump off the building. Now, someone might say, uh, you could believe on Mr. Brown, the dentist, and you'll be saved. But that doesn't mean I have to let him pull all my teeth in order to get saved, does it? No. Uh, It simply means I'm going to have to trust him to catch me in the net. Someone else could say, believe on Mr. Smith, the mechanic, and you'll be saved. But it doesn't mean I have to let him fix my car to be saved or service my car. It means I'm simply trusting him to hold the net for me to catch me or believe on Mr. Blevins, the airplane pilot, to be saved. That doesn't mean I have to fly on his plane to get saved. I simply trust him to do what he's there to do. And it's the same way with Jesus Christ. When someone trusts him, they don't know everything about his lordship. They don't know everything they're supposed to do to follow because nobody follows all the commands. And you can't do that. You're asking an unregenerate person to do that before they get saved. It just does not work. It doesn't work. Faith simply is defined as being convinced that something is true. It's, it's believing Jesus' promise that he gives everlasting life to whomever believes in him for it because of what he did on the cross, dying for the sins of the whole world, not just some, but the whole world, and being raised again on the third day for our justification. Now, lordship will criticize with a misnomer and a, a logical fallacy and so oh, that's just easy believism. Well, let me tell you something. It's not easy to believe that Jesus Christ, someone is born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose again, is coming back again one day. Someone you've seen, someone you've never touched or heard his audible voice. It's not easy to believe in someone like that. Now, some people want to call it hard believism. And in fact, John MacArthur has a book called Hard Believism. It's totally false. Uh, believism, it is believism, but it's not hard and it's not easy, but rather it's simple. Because the gospel is simple and the Lordship view uh, definitely muddies the gospel and, and has people looking at their lives to see if they've got enough works to prove that they're saved. The scriptures don't teach that works are important. Sure. But God is the ultimate judge of works. That's why we have the judgment seat of Christ. As the Bible mentions in first Corinthians three and over also in Romans. It talks about that. God's the ultimate judge of works. That's why he uh, will be the one that does that, that, uh, judges the works. Now let's move on here. Okay. Jesus did 100% of the work. He he gives salvation totally free. That's why it's called a gift. He paid for it all. Uh, there's no amount of performance. There's no amount of promising. There's no amount of all these things. And we use these terms that are false. Make Jesus your Lord. Now, my opponent actually Uh, I think mentioned that. I, I don't think we should use those terms either. We don't make a sovereign God do anything. We receive him as he is. But now there's a difference. We're talking about the Lordship of Christ. There's a difference between Jesus being Lord objectively and subjectively. He's already Lord. We don't make him Lord. God's already declared him Lord of all, the Bible says. We just receive him as he is, and believe on him, and then after we believe on him, then we begin to follow him. We can't follow him until we first come to him, and so that has to take place first. And so he's already Lord. He's Lord enough to save the individuals that come to him and believe in him. So he's Lord objectively. And to say that we have to uh, necessarily make him Lord, or you know, th- or those type of using those type of words. What about make him the Son of God? Make him the Messiah? Make him the Christ. I mean, we're supposed to believe all the other titles for Jesus in order to be saved? No, he's already Lord, but he is Savior. And then we begin to- Five walk. minutes. Five minutes, okay. Uh, also mention this, free grace uh, does uh, distinguishes between salvation and discipleship. Lordship does not. Now here's the big problem. Free grace believes what the scriptures teach, that the condition for eternal salvation is distinct from, from the many conditions for discipleship. Deny oneself, take up your cross, follow Christ, abide in his word, love Christ more than your family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sell all your possessions to the poor. Those are discipleship verses, not salvation verses. If those were salvation verses, it would be based on works. So free grace believes that the commitment of discipleship should be the result of salvation, not the requirement. Now, Lordship proponents like to fuse those two together. And that's works. I mean, who who do you know in this world can follow Jesus 100% that can commit everything, that can turn from all sin, that can repent of all sin? Nobody does that unless you're some kind of perfect person and you're just gonna float away on the cloud somewhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the, you know some people picture angels floating on clouds and they're, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, that's just not what the scriptures teach. Salvation is a one-time event where discipleship is an ongoing process, that the person does have a free will to choose. The person does uh, have that option to choose, or else there wouldn't be a judgment for works. And if the believer has an option to choose, we have an there. We can still sin. We still can fall, or else we wouldn't have to be able to First John one nine confess our sins, so we can be cleansed and for fellowship with Christ. Now, quickly. Um, how much time have I got, Donnie? A
0: good question. You've got uh, three minutes. Okay, three minutes.
2: Great. Okay. Now, um, a major criticism to free grace is, well, you think you could just get saved and live any way you want to? Well, first of all, that's a straw man. I've never taught that. I don't teach that. Now, can someone do that? Sure. Should they? No, they should not. The Bible tells us, that we are uh, Titus 2, 11 and 12. We should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. Ephesians two ten we should walk in good works. Romans 6 uh, talks about, we should also walk in the newness of life. Now notice we should, it, those texts don't say we will walk in good works. That's Calvinism. And they also don't say we must walk in good works. That's legalism. You see, the thing about it is, it's if it's automatic. How do you explain those verses? How do you explain those verses? It's not automatic. I mean, you could take someone who's been saved for years. If they haven't been discipled, they don't know exactly everything they're supposed to do. They have to grow. But you see, the lordship view, like what my opponent adheres to, does not. It does not leave any room for growth. Does not leave any room for discipleship or to follow or to, to become more like Christ, that's a process. And for everyone, that's different. And as far as this whole uh, fruit inspection thing, uh, you got to look at people all through the scriptures. If you're trying to judge people by the works, I mean, you got people like, um, for example, the Ephesians, the Bible talks about in Acts 19, uh, 10 through 19, they were saved and they didn't burn their magic books for two years. So if you go with the Lordship view, you got to say, oh, they're not saved, they didn't burn the magic books. I guess they're still, you know, they're not saved. That's not for us to determine. Uh, There are several other places. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, delayed their public confession of faith. John 19, 38, 39. Simon the sorcerer appears to have been saved in spite of his moral flaws and greed and selfish ambition. Acts 8, 13. Uh, The same is true of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, 1 through 11. And again, you've got 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a whole list of sins that- One minute. Uh, people, uh, thank you, that people do. They had strife, divisions, pride, envy, sexual sins, drunkenness. Paul never says what the Armenians would say. Well, they were saved, but they lost it. Or what the Calvinists would say, they didn't persevere. So I guess they were never saved. No, they were carnal. Else Paul would not have to mention this. And so he gets on with about being carnal. And we got to remember the free grace position also is not discounting works. It's not saying easy believism. It's not saying just go out and live like you want to. That is not what it's saying. So I want to clear that up uh, once and for all. We have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of how we've lived. So works are very important. I've always preached that. Every time I've preached, I've preached about watch how you live. We, we should live holy. We should live righteous. We should live like Christ. And so that's what it's all about. And Jesus is Lord, regardless of one submission to him. He's already Lord. You hear people say piously, if Jesus seconds. is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that's just simply not true. Thank you.
0: All right. There we go. 15 minutes from John Crawford. And that concludes the introductions, the opening statements. So, uh, gentlemen, we're now moving into the discussion portion, which, as we agreed to, is going to be broken up into 15 minute increments where the uh, where the debaters get to lead the way for 15 minutes at a time. Since John just ended with his 15 minute opening statement, uh, Pastor J.D. Martin, why don't we uh, start with you for the first 15 minutes to lead the way? Go ahead, gentlemen. The floor is yours.
1: Okay, thank you. So would you agree with 2 Corinthians 5.17 that anyone in Christ is a new creation, the oldest passed away, behold, the new has come?
2: Oh yeah, that's what the text says, absolutely.
1: Okay, so you do agree that when somebody does get converted, the old man dies and a new person is, is created, uh, right? No, you,
2: the old man is still there. The flesh, you have the old nature or else we wouldn't have uh Now that's talking about the spiritual man. The spiritual man is what's saved. That's what's okay. new. This flesh is obviously not new. And what Jesus it, what is it, not going to... Jesus if, won't take care of that until the resurrection.
1: Okay, I agree that the flesh still remains, but what does it mean that the old has passed away?
2: Well, it means I mean, you're old, you're you're seeing. you have a new nature as far as okay. your internal yeah. part. So
1: and you have, if you look
2: at that, if you look at that in the Greek, if you look that up in that Greek phrase, it says, uh actually, all things are becoming new. So if the, you look at old, that has,
1: you're saying the old has passed away is not is it is an actually incorrect translation.
2: No, I didn't say that. I mean, it's what that's just talking about. Basically, you have a new man, but you've got this old man. So your spirit part was dead. It was depraved. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a Calvinist when I say that. I'm just saying it was totally separate from God. It was dead. Uh, it was out of fellowship with God. It was lost. That part's yeah. what becomes alive. That's the part that's a new creation. Is your yeah, spirit
1: or the your text, soul? The text says, and we can move on to another text, but the text specifically says the old has passed away. So I'm not disagreeing that we still struggle with the flesh. Of course we do, but that something categorically different has occurred. And I guess I'm just—it sounds like you're saying that this is a mistranslation. So Second Corinthians five seventeen, the oldest passed away. Are you saying that that this is not a correct translation of the passage?
2: No, no, that's not what—that's not what I was saying.
1: What I'm saying is the
2: new creation part is actually the part the spirit bans the new creation. I mean, we can see the flesh is not obviously not, it's still there. And if we still sin, I mean, we've either got two options here. We're either sinlessly perfect or we're still believers and we still struggle with sin because of the flesh. Now, let me just mention this if I can real quick. When I attended Bible college uh, at Fruitland Baptist Bible Institute, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but um, a teacher actually told me that he believed we did not have an old nature. And he argued, "Well, that's just your physical flesh." So I said, "Well, that's what old nature is." Yeah. And we still have thoughts in our mind. We still have internal sins in our soul or emotion part, but the yeah, spirit stereotype- mean,
1: part. I would certainly, I would certainly agree. I guess my, my point is simply to say that I would, I would, I would argue that this is hyperbolic language. But the point is, is that it's describing a fundamental change here, and very yeah. strongly, uh, of the oldest passed away. Now, let me go to another text, Ezekiel thirty-six. Um, do you agree that the heart sprinkling, the cleansing you from all uncleanness, the giving you a new heart, a new spirit, putting his Holy Spirit within you, um, making you a child of God, that is all true for the Christian, the believer? Well, of
2: course, now I haven't exegeted that text. So, specifically, I, I would have to address that, uh, you know, just from a cursory reading. But if you look at that text, that's, it wasn't talking about the church. It was talking to Israel. And I'm a dispensationalist, so I'm going to probably disagree. You'll probably disagree with me. that okay. that was referring to Israel, not the church. And that was prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts,
1: Acts so, chapter 2. So you would, you would say you do not have a new heart? Or would no, you I, didn't say I, didn't, I didn't say that. Oh, I'm, I'm just clarifying. Would you agree that you have a new Let me just ask you. Do you have a new heart when you get converted?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you don't, and you're different. not saved.
1: Okay, and does God put a new yeah. spirit within you?
2: Yeah, his Holy Spirit, yeah.
1: Okay, does he cleanse Baptist you? From all, Holy spirit. Does he cleanse you from all uncleanliness?
2: Yeah. Past, he, present, and future, yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, does he put his spirit within you? Yeah. And does he um let's see, does he make you a child of God? Yes. So everything in this list, it sounds like you agree uh that he does for the believer, yes. whether it's referring to Jewish believers sometime that that's beside the point. You agree with that. Now, uh here's the the part. That I'm wondering if you agree with though and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Is that true?
2: Uh, well, of course it's true. I mean, it's not. It's a matter of how you interpret that passage. Now, I don't, you know, that's a whole. You know, we, we interpret it different, probably. But have how, to how do you it.
1: how do you how do you interpret? I mean, you can pull it up Ezekiel 36 verse 27.
2: Yeah, I've, I've, I've read. I've read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I will. would well, it, say it's talking to, say talk to talk it. Israel, and you, you got to see what the surrounding context of the passage is. What is the context of that passage?
1: Okay, so you're saying that this is only true for the church. I mean, this is only true for Israel. It's not true that he's going to cause believers to walk in his statues and be careful to obey my rules. Is that what you're saying? I
2: don't, I, don't, I don't know of any New Testament passage that says, I will make you do anything. It's because, again, we get into this, make him your Lord and Savior. We don't make God do anything. and He doesn't
1: make us do anything. Yeah. Well, he's making, would you agree he's making somebody do something? I mean, this is talking to somebody. Well, you said that I mean, if you, if
2: you just look at that, if you isolate that text, yes. But what when you look at a verse, and you, I'm sure you know this as a pastor, I don't have to probably, I'll explain it for people watching. Every verse every verse is part of a paragraph in a context every paragraph is part of a chapter and every chapter is a part of a book in the bible and every book in the bible makes up the whole of scripture so we have to look and see what's going on before and after now i haven't exegeted that text so yeah. i'm not would, familiar you, with would, that you, text.
1: would you at least agree that the plain meaning of i will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules is that god is causing them to walk in his statutes according to that text yeah okay so uh, at least but, yeah. at least some group of people at some point in time based on their new heart new spirit all all these things that sound like exactly the same things that he does to Christians at least one group at one time he actually caused them to walk in his statutes right
2: we got to look and see when when that text says I will cause you Are you are you saying that that means he's forcing them to do it
1: no, I, I don't think so. But I do think if I says if God says, I'm going to cause you to jump, you're going to jump, right? Uh, if God says, I'm going to cause you to die, you're going to die. I, I'm not getting into the mechanics of that. The, the point is simply that if God says he's going to cause you to do it, then you're going to end up doing it. Um, and, and that's kind of the point there. But we'll, we'll move on there because you're okay. taking that uh, as a Jewish thing, and that's fine. All right, so Matthew chapter 7. Um, what are the sheep's clothing? So he talks about false prophets coming in sheep's clothing. I interpret the sheep's clothing as a mere profession of faith. What would you, do you agree with that, or would you? Un- I would. I would agree with. I would agree with that, Yeah, because they look, you know, they look, uh, you know,
2: like Christian or believers. Uh, Matthew, okay. of course, was written to Jews, so they look like believers, but
1: inside they're ravening wolves. I believe what the verse says. But, okay. So uh, you you would agree that there is a category of people that say they love jesus they have a profession of faith they they have the christian sticker and in fact they have not been changed they're still wolves right
2: oh yeah now of course now that context again we gotta go back to the exegetical context he is talking about uh false prophets because if you, you know, the, yeah. the verse you alluded to where he talks about they'll stand before him and you know did we cast out demons and we prophesy in your name etc etc depart from me i never knew you uh only those that do the will of the father will enter heaven so He's not talking about good works getting him into heaven because they did. If you, you know, here's another thing, if you're looking at works, you could look at those people. They look Christianese. They did all the things and they're telling Jesus, look what we did. He's saying, that's not going to get you in. You don't know me. So, yeah. but okay. of course, okay. that's well, a that's a that's a broader context well, right. when we get them talking about so about that. But just to be clear
1: i'm sorry what just just be clear because you're saying that this has to do with false prophets i agree with you but do you agree that the application would be true of any false believer hanging out pretending to be a christian in the church or you're saying you you could make that application yeah you could okay so he says that you will be able to recognize people who claim to be christian but really are not by their fruit so is jesus commending fruit inspection
2: uh for false prophets. Yes. But now, but okay, if you're, but- you're, 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 wait a minute, you're saying, let me back up. You're saying that you believe that applies to all believers.
1: Okay. Here, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that there, let me just back up. Do you agree that there are false believers who are not necessarily false prophets?
2: Uh, you could say that. Yeah. But okay, the, you- the, let, me, let me tell you the way, let me tell you the way I would handle that. I don't look at their works because if we can talk, we could have a whole <laughs> another show on that, but I would just ask them, what do you really believe about Jesus Christ? Now, I realize people can say, oh, I believe in Christ, and they never have truly been saved, right? But they have to actually come to a point. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. (laughs) If they've been convicted and they have felt the conviction, the weight of their sin, and they realize they need a Savior, and they place their faith in Christ, then they're saved based on what Jesus promised. I
1: I absolutely agree with that. But it sounds like what you're saying is, because it's the question I originally asked is, you had a statement that you said you're not a fruit inspector and spoke bad about fruit inspection. Jesus tells you you will recognize them by their fruits. So it sounds to me that you're directly contradicting Jesus. You're saying don't be a fruit inspector. Jesus says to be a fruit inspector. So what I think I just heard, I want to just clarify. I think you said I wouldn't be a fruit inspector. I would ask them questions about their faith. But but how come you are disagreeing with Jesus who says you will recognize them by their fruits? You're saying you will recognize them by asking them about their faith. So how do you reconcile what Jesus says versus what you're saying?
2: Well, the thing about it is that the Matthew 7 is is, is a, that's a common misapplication of the passage, I think, because that's well, first of all, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, um, how do we know who a true Christian is and who, who's not? Well, somebody says, well, it's hard to tell, but because these fruit inspectors get all this. And here's the thing about fruit inspection. One person may see something that looks Christian and the other may not. You can't get two fruit inspectors that agree on anything. And you also don't know who uh, is doing something behind the scenes that you can't see. They may be going to an all-night soup kitchen or they may spend hours in prayer. They may read their Bible. We don't always see that. And if you see somebody out here that's living in sin, it's easy to say, oh, that person was never saved. Well, now, wait a minute. Maybe there's just... they, yeah, choose, I, they choose to make a scene, So
1: I, I understand. So we, we don't have perfect fruit inspection, but it sounds like what you're saying is fruit inspection is bad. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruit and telling us to look at their fruit. So it sounds like what you're saying is that even if you go extremely dispensational here and said this only applied at some foregone point in time in history that is no longer today, at least would you agree that Jesus at one time expected people to be fruit inspectors? So there must not be yeah. something fundamentally wrong with fruit inspecting if Jesus at one time told his people what? to inspect. Is that right? right?
2: You got to look at the context. Now, Matthew 12, 33 basically says false prophets are tested by their words. So the fruit there is the teaching, actually, if you want to talk about false prophets. So,
1: so when he goes um, on to say verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Good fruit there refer to false teaching. It doesn't refer to behavior. I don't think it does. No.
2: Because okay. if, you, if you look at the overall context, he's talking about false prophets. Now, of course, when he's talking about when people stand before him and did not cast out demons, that can refer generally to unbelievers. But again, he goes on to talk about false prophets later on when he says, you know them by their fruits. That's their teaching. And okay. why did he use the word? Now, here's a question. Why does he use the word fruit? Possibly because fruit, when you think about fruit, obviously he's not talking about literal fruit he's speaking figuratively he, well when a false teaching starts it spreads it grows and yeah. it can infiltrate into the church so okay so you're,
1: t- you're taking fruit as as false teachings instead of uh behavior and so you'll recognize them by their teaching not their actual behavior that's fine yeah uh, so matthew chapter 7 right uh, beneath that do you have the people crying out lord lord and then you have in verse 23 jesus said i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness will you right. agree that workers of lawlessness refer to their behavior? Well, in that, in that context, yeah, because they, they,
2: they had good works, right? They, they, you know, did all these things and Jesus yeah. he's going to say, depart from me. So they obviously weren't saved. So works didn't save them. Works. They yeah, thought they, that it did.
1: Yes. They had works of, the thing, the thing that are mentioned here is these acts of piety, right? Uh, casting out demons, doing these many, mighty works, all of these acts of Christian piety. Uh, but when he calls them workers of lawlessness, it seems to be referring to acts of morality. You think about the Pharisees. They do tithing, they show up to church, and all this other stuff. Acts of piety, but their morality was corrupt. Uh, right. And so I guess, here's my question. Um, speech act theory, I don't have time to get into it, but if I'm reading this, and I'm like, well, wait a second. I say, Lord, Lord, and I do these acts of piety. Should I not be afraid, based on verse 23, if I'm in fact living a life that is full of lawlessness? Like, should I not be wondering if Jesus is going to say this to me one day? Well, I mean, again, the context. And notice what else he says there when he says,
2: only those that do the will of my father. Well, they weren't doing the will of the Father. The good works were the will of the Father. So what's the will of the Father? is to believe in Christ for everlasting life. They didn't do that. So anyone that's not done that, that's what they should be afraid of. Now, so, I realize there's so, false professions of faith. But when someone has truly been converted yeah. by Christ, obviously they change internally. But now the works thing, uh, everybody's on a different growth level. So that's why we got to be careful not to judge people yeah. who's saved, who's not saved.
1: No, I agree with that. I guess I'm, I'm still, I like something you said. You said that, um, that there will be a life change, right? That there will be, if, if they're, if they're converted, they will be fundamentally changed. Um, and, and so let me just go back to something you said, you said that this is talking about faith, but isn't Lord Lord a profession of faith? Well, it's,
2: it's, uh, just because they call him Lord, doesn't mean that he's Lord of them. Obviously he's not
1: Lord of their bad works. Yeah, so what is the te- what is the test of this passage of whether or not their profession of faith is actually authentic? Well, in that
2: what context, is going to? That, that context, of course, is going to be too late for them.
1: They thought they were saved, but they never believed on Christ. Would you agree that this passage is written to us so that we don't end up like these people? Well, I mean, all,
2: all the Bible is written, uh, not necessarily, it's written for us, all of it's not written to us. Gentlemen, uh,
0: that's 50. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, John, finish your sentence. Oh, oh
2: that's okay. I, I was done. That was it.
0: P- perfect. Um, that was a fast-paced 15 minutes. Great job. We've got over 100 people in the chat. Really, really enjoying this uh, this debate so far. So JD, John, great job. Okay, we're now moving into the second round. This will be another 15 minutes, except we'll have John lead the way, asking questions this time. So go ahead. The floor is yours, guys.
2: Okay, here we go. All right. Um, JD, do you see a difference between salvation and discipleship?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, they're fundamentally different. I mean, well, fundamentally different. I think that oftentimes in the scripture that the word disciple and the word um, Christian follower are synonymous. So, for example, in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples um, is not saying I don't want you to make converts. A disciple of Jesus Christ starts at conversion and just continues on from there. Um, so I don't think that we can often get this really uh, night and, nice and tidy. If we see the word disciple, then that means discipleship, as in post-Christian um, that kind of reality. But I do agree with the concept that somebody is a convert and then their discipleship continues on. But again, I want to argue that discipleship begins at conversion and just carries on later on It continues so on. You
2: so let me ask you this. So you would say that uh, someone have to, would have to commit, follow, obey Jesus in order to get saved?
1: Uh, yes, but I, I think it depends on what we mean. So I go to uh, John three nineteen and 20. That says that they hate the light and refuse to come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. And so, people I mean, if we preach the gospel to people. People understand that coming to Jesus means to forsake this sin. They understand, oh, if I'm addicted to pornography, pornography and Christianity are incompatible, and I cannot claim Jesus as Lord and continue. Uh, to be addicted and unrepentant of pornography. And this is exactly why people don't come to Christ. This is exactly uh, what uh, uh, John 3.19 says. And I'm sure you yourself, uh, as an evangelist, knows what I'm saying is true. Namely, that people don't come to Christ because they love their sin. Now, here's the problem in my mind. Real quick, sorry. Uh, Here's the problem in my mind. It sounds like if I was a free grace kind of person... I would actually be trying to tell people, guys, you can have your porn and Jesus. Yeah, it'd be better if you get rid of the porn, but you can actually, you don't have to worry about that. Just keep on watching and you can be saved. That's what I would be telling people because I know that's an obstacle for them to be saved. But thank God that nobody does that because of how outrageous that is.
2: Well, the thing about it is, if you, where do you draw the line when you, if you tell some, so your version of repent sounds like they've got to stop their sinning and turn from their sin to be saved. Correct?
1: No um i here's what i i remember i was addicted to pornography before i got saved uh and i was my girlfriend everything else um and i remember knowing that i was a slave to sin jesus said if you commit sin you are a slave to sin so i knew i was a slave to sin and i knew i could not stop Uh, but i knew that if i just threw myself on jesus i said here i am lord i'm your slave and um i I give my life to you and that's what i think we have to be willing to do is to change allegiance is to say, Christ, I'm over here and you can cleanse me. And then Christ does cleanse you. He breaks, he breaks the shackles. So would you
2: believe that, uh, w- what is your version of repent? How would you define repent?
1: I think repent is uh, a change of attitude, namely on your sin. So your sin is no longer viewed as this love, lovely, delectable, wonderful, great time, things that I want to live my life on. Um, you, you view your sin now is, um, is now incompatible with your Christian life. And now you're, you're handing yourself over to Christ. So I think repenting is a changing of mind of, of, based, based on sin, that this is no longer a friend. It's now a, something that I uh, need to give up. It's something I'm going to give over to the Lord. So, So you're not, let me make sure I understand correctly. I don't want to
2: misrepresent you. You are not saying that someone has to stop sinning, turn from sin or any of that. You're saying you change your mind about the
1: sin and then believe in Christ. Correct? Absolutely. So, I mean, I use pornography as an example. Let's just say drinking. Uh, I could evangelize somebody who's literally drunk under alcohol or at least hung over under alcohol and tell them to convert. And I would not need to tell him, "Okay, first, you need to get sober for X amount of days and then you can be saved. Of course not. Right. Come to Jesus be saved. And then I have every confidence that God will help him get off the bottle. So if he if he stops the bottle is to say stops it. And then he
2: gets saved and slips up and goes back to the bottle. Would you say he was never saved?
1: No. I mean, we all do that. We all slip in many ways. Well, um, see, now, I
2: think- I, I'm not saying, okay, maybe you don't hold that view. But a lot of lordshippers would say, no, that person was never saved. They wouldn't go back to drinking.
1: So No. Just to be clear, though, I want to be clear about going back to drinking and uh, slipping up into Uh, alcohol, right? There's a distinction. And so him going back into drinking, when I was saved at 15 years old and I was addicted to pornography and fornication, everything else, I'm not going to sit here and say I've never watched porn ever since that day. That's not the case. I did get freedom later on, uh, but it was progressive freedom, right? And so it's not simply like, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. Oh, I watched porn one time. I'm I'm, damned. That's not the way it is. But there is a progressive uh, sense of sanctification. And I do believe that uh, there will be ever gaining, going from glory to glory, heading toward the path of more and more freedom, which is a testament of my life. And so in the example you gave, it's one thing for him to slip up in drinking and seasons and, and even protract the season. It's another thing for him to become a drunk, a continuous, unrepentant drunk. And if he does, I, I don't know. I don't believe that uh, such a person will enter the kingdom of God. Well, I would probably differ on that. Now, uh,
2: I do not believe that. You know, as I said, get saved, go out, and live like you want to. It's okay. There's no consequences. But uh, if if we now, do you believe a person still has an old sinful nature after regeneration? Yes, I do. I, I believe that uh, uh, the flesh okay, is still there. Mm-hmm. Second question, follow up. Do you also believe? Uh, follow up question. Do you also believe that if that person can still sin, mm-hmm. can that? regenerate person, the saved person, still sin just like somebody that's not saved? In other words, could they get so tempted and so in bondage to sin that they go back to that? And whether it's five days, five months, five years, I don't think the time limit matters or I don't think the quantity matters. Sin is still sin in God's eyes.
1: So, well, I would, I would dispute that sin is, is just sin. I, I don't believe uh, watching pornography one time is equivalent to watching pornography for 12 years straight uh, every single day, every single night. I, I don't think anybody should uh, think that, right? Or cheating on your wife one time uh, would, uh, when I stand is the same thing of having an ongoing affair uh, with your next neighbor for five years. Uh, that's irrational. And, and I would say, no, God is not irrational and, and doesn't view that in that way. Okay. I think
2: that how, do you see, how do you see the chastisement of God? Because we know Ananias and Sapphira, they sin, they drop dead. So, God now, can take people out for sin if they're you know, truly His. Yeah.
1: I absolutely agree. And oh. I, I actually had another debate, I think on this very channel, about um, how you cannot lose yourself, how you will not lose your salvation. And I did mention one of the ways that God uh, very well may may maintain His saints is if He sees you heading in a direction where you're about to jump off the cliff, He might just kill you before you ever get to that point. So, I don't have any problem with the idea of God's uh, chest. I, mean, I believe. Or absolutely. the.
2: What first John talks about the sin unto death, We don't know what that is. Don't want to personally find out, but uh, I, I believe personally a person can they can because they can sin like a lost person, but the difference is if they have conviction to stop it. If they don't stop it, there are temporal consequences like de- physical death, not eternal, but physical death, and also a loss of reward of the judgment seat of Christ,
1: yeah, so I mean, I, I agree with that in part, right? And so again, I do believe, that a Christian can be doing some pretty wicked stuff. I mean, look at David. We have a Bible full of examples of Christians uh, doing some pretty wicked stuff. So that's not really my argument. That uh, you know, oh, you're a Christian, so you could never slap me in the face. No, no, you can't. Um, and I understand that. But I do believe though that there are certain lists, there are certain characteristics, there are certain, you know, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That not just a season, but describe the the direction of your life. And if that is you, where the direction of your life is a luster, is a drunkard, is a slanderer, all these kind of things. Not that you're a Christian who slanders and struggling with it and going up and down and backwards and forward. But if you just live and revel in it, no, I don't believe you're saved. Okay, so, but then here's here's, here's another question.
2: How does one determine what a, what a practice is and what, I mean, how many, five times, ten times? uh amount you know as far as a year two years three years i mean like the ephesian believers i pointed out they had their magic books for two years before they burned them so would you if you were in that context and you looked at those believers would you say oh they're not saved they still
1: have magic books they're still under witchcraft yeah so i think um uh no so i think actually that christ gave the keys to the church and there's supposed to be visible signs um and so under this uh people with the magic books or whatever. In fact, I think they're a great example of the point I'm getting at. It's You You point to the fact that they were in bondage for two years or whatever. Uh, well, I would point to the fact that they got free after two years. So um, it, it's not, again, I mean, it's not this simple, you know, well, what exactly is the difference between struggling with something and actually being characterized by that thing? Look, that's the ambiguity of the Bible. The fact of the matter is that if you're continuously watching pornography, you're continuously getting drunk every single night, you do have to ask yourself, are you a drunkard? Are you a fornicator? These kind of things. And you need to look at these passages seriously and wonder, am I in that category? You need to repent. And you need to say, I, I don't want to be in that category. See, to me, that's the issue. Now, as far as as far as viewing other, I'm talking that's a personal level, right? You're looking at these passages say, like, I hope I don't want to be these people. And if you are those people, you need to repent. Um, as far as looking at other people, though then, yeah, there comes to a point, I mean, you know, you were, you were a pastor at one point, right? I don't know if your church exercised church discipline. They should have. There comes to a point where somebody says to you, you know, I got drunk. Okay, you're not getting church discipline because you got drunk. But if, every, if the wife reports every single night for the last two years he's been drinking himself silly, then, yeah, now you have moved to the point of church discipline where we need to start looking at some, some you know course of action to correct you.
2: I don't. I don't totally disagree with that. What I'm what I'm talking about is a salvation issue. Would you say that person is not? Would you say, oh, you've been drinking all the time. You're not. You're going to hell, or would you just say? Would you go back and say, okay, did you believe on Christ? And if you did, then why are
1: you doing this? No, I would. I would absolutely do that. But let me just uh, bring it back to that church discipline. So, what is church discipline? Ultimately, if it gets to that last step. The mm-hmm. church is to declare you as a tax collector and as a, uh, a Gentile, namely an unbeliever. And so to me, this is the declaration of the church that you are actually, the wrath of God is upon you. Now, it, it, it could be not the case. You could, in fact, just be, um, you know, a believer who's uh, who's been excommunicated and should return back. But that's the declaration. Declaration is you are an unbeliever, and Jesus says that he agrees with his church, which should terrify you and cause you to come back into, into the fold. Um, so. Okay. That, that's okay. how I view it. I don't believe you actually lost your salvation, but certainly it should uh, cause right. you great trepidation. So, how many
2: works does somebody have to to prove to be saved? How many and Zero. What, to what quality?
1: None. They don't have to do. Oh, I heard
2: you say that you had to have works to prove it. Did you not say that, or did I hear you wrong?
1: I think maybe I'm being misunderstood a little bit. You don't have to do any works to be saved. You have to believe on Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that
2: no, I'm saying if you're saved, to prove you're saved.
1: Well, to prove to who? I mean, what do you, to prove to yourself, to prove to other people? Other, I mean, I'm asking you that question. I don't believe that, but I'm asking you that question. Do you believe so, that? So when it comes to proving to yourself, I think it is one of the tests, right? You to make your calling and election sure. So if you say, I believe in Jesus, and you read about all these fake believers, you should ask yourself, am I that fake believer? And you should examine yourself to see if, in fact, that there are there's evidence that you have the Holy Spirit within you. Um, when it comes to other people, We should uh presume that everybody is saved based on their profession now if they start uh, mugging everybody in the church parking lot and uh becoming a mass murderer we should call that into question and in fact you mentioned simon the sorcerer that's exactly what peter did that they believed in charity that this man was saved and then when he tried to buy the holy spirit then they called him out and they did a church discipline to declare him as an unbeliever so we should presume people are believers until their actions suggest otherwise
2: okay um how much time do we have? Two minutes. Good question. Yep, two minutes. Okay, good. Okay, I'm trying to, I feel like we're going through this like crazy here. Um, well, I would say good work sometimes can be unseen. Would you agree with that?
1: Amen, all the time. And most like, of them- Matthew,
2: like for example, Matthew 6, Jesus told the followers there to give and pray in secret rather than publicly, and he would reward them openly. So we can't always see what someone's doing.
1: Amen. And according 100%. to that
2: verse, you know, and whereas the Pharisees, the Sadducees, hey, they were standing up there, look, we're tithing and we're giving money and we're praying and we're holy and all this. So they were actually trying to show, you know, trying to show off with the wrong motivation and be religious. And so I think it's religious to say, oh, hey, look at my works. Look what I'm doing. Well, it doesn't necessarily prove you're saved. I agree 100%. And, and so, okay, so we agree on that much. But some 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 of stuff we agree on differences here and there, but some stuff we do. I also think good work sometimes can be uh, passive in nature. For example, uh, the fruit of salvation is not always what we do, but often what we do not do. For example, uh, a Christian may no longer get drunk or cuss or refrain from yelling at an inconsiderate motorist, uh, but, you know, you don't always see that it's internal, you know, and, and. They refrain from doing those things. So we can't always see it. So there, sometimes works can be passive. Would you agree with that?
1: A hundred percent. And here's the one thing I want to be clear. Uh, again, we should have charity uh, upon ourselves and other people, right? Um, and it's not this like uh, this uh, hermeneutic of suspicion. I don't believe that you're saying until you prove it to me. It's the exact opposite. I believe you're saying until I find out you've been cheating on your wife for the last five years. Now I'm starting to question your salvation. Right? Okay,
2: I would agree that, yes, it's questionable. I would agree 100%. I would question, okay, well, now let's go back and see what happened. Did you truly believe on Christ? And if you did, then you need to get right with God. You shouldn't be doing those things. That's why it says we should walk in the news of life. We should have good works because God prepared that we walk in them. We should, but I don't think that they're automatic. Now, if, if I understand correctly, you believe works are automatic, correct?
0: And J.D., let's give you the last word uh, since th- this would be your opportunity to have it. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I don't believe works so automatic. You to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you, both too willing to work for his good pleasure. So they're certainly not automatic. Um, you know, God is working in you, but you also are working as well. And there's a cooperation, there's a synergism um, that is happening between God and man when it comes to um, sanctification, that's synergistic. And so, no, I don't think they're automatic. Uh, my my argument and and— about to start my time here my argument is that there will be good works not that every good work in and of itself is automatic but that there will be good works so i don't know don we can start my time
0: absolutely appreciate that second round again tons of fun uh you guys are doing a fantastic job so we're now into the third 15 minute round time is flying by jd go ahead lead the way
1: Okay. So really I just really want to bullet down because I think John that me and you agree on a whole lot. There's a few things that we disagree, but here's really for me where the rubber meets the road. Uh it sounds to me like what you're saying in the end is that I could knock on somebody's door and I could uh, you know convert I can teach them the gospel. They could say that they believe it. They could believe it in their heart hypothetically. Uh you know Call upon the name of the Lord and then believe in the heart. And at that point, from that point on, they could become an atheist, a Satanist, a mass murderer, every bad thing you could ever possibly imagine. It would be the worst human being the world has ever seen. And that person would still be saved. They would just be stripped of rewards and benefits in heaven. If they've
2: absolutely been born again, yes, that's what I'm saying.
1: Yes. That is what you're saying, right? Yes. Okay. You are saying that it's not based, it's not based
2: on a promise to never sin again or to never do it because. I don't know if I'm going to persevere next week. I might I might make a bad decision. Well, that bad decision may not be as bad as some other people's decisions, but they're bad decisions either way. And okay. there are different degrees of sin. I get that. But so again, did, if a person does that, God will take them out. I
1: believe that. Chastise okay, Just to be clear, what you're saying is that some atheists could be saved because prior to their atheism, and they're champion of atheism and them going around trying to convince everyone that God is not real. That when they were five years old, they truly did believe in Jesus and called upon his name. And so that atheist who's currently an atheist is actually a saved atheist. Is that what you're saying?
2: Well, again, you have to define terms. A practical atheist is someone that practically you know, starts to live like there's no God. And so, but I don't believe in the sense of uh, backing up here, I don't believe that the, you know an atheist saying there's no God. Would, if you've truly been
1: born again, I don't think to that point. No, that would be oh, extreme. So, so, just to clarify, sure. so you do believe that there is no one who would be born again who would become an atheist? Is that right? Yeah, I don't. I don't see anywhere that that happened in the scripture. Now, having said
2: that don't misquote me on other stuff because pe- there are people in the scriptures that did a lot of bad stuff.
1: Okay. So at the very least, if somebody becomes an atheist for you, that's a line too far that you can say this person for your position, if they become, if they're unrepentant atheist, this person was almost certainly never saved in the first place. Right. In that ca- in that category. Yeah. Okay. But if
2: they, okay. but now if somebody, if somebody started to get, let's just say somebody started to go down that road, I believe God would take them out.
1: Okay. No, just no, problem. Just, just no, no problem with that. We're talking about the actual full blown atheist, okay? Because there's plenty of atheists that claim to be have once been saved. I'm sure you're familiar with this. They I've lost many of them, people. yeah, mm-hmm. okay. And we can say, no, I don't think so. All right, so what about I, I, would, agree, I would agree with that part, yeah, okay? Praise the Lord. Uh, what about uh, a person who goes on to be a serial pedophile and to murder his victims? So this guy is a serial pedophile, murders victims. We hear a story and he says, Well, I was born again when I was 12. I fell away when I was 20, and he's sp- spent the last 20 years uh killing little boys. Um, would you can we at least like sign him off and say, yeah. No, I think that you were saved?
2: Well, the thing is, we're getting, you're getting high, you getting hot, you're using a lot of hypotheticals, a lot of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. All I'm arguing is if somebody's truly born again, they are born again.
1: And okay, but, I, but would you still say just like the atheist, we can be almost certain that this person was not converted? At any time in the past. Uh,
2: again, I would have to talk to the person because if you just judge that, if you just judge that, it's easy to say, all oh, the person was never saved. But again, you would go back and say, did you truly believe? Like with the atheist.
1: Well, I'm saying if he, did say, if he did say, I truly did believe. I truly believe in Jesus Christ. And I fell away at 20 and then fell into all this nasty stuff after well, that. Again, I would about? ask what, what did you believe about Christ? Because anybody can believe. A, what if he was a Baptist preacher? I mean, what if he, he he could preach the gospel better than any of us? He got all the answers right, and I'm just but his life from at this point he's a serial pedophile, right? I mean, can we at least be highly suspicious that this person was ever saved? Oh, you could question it, sure. Okay, but he's hmm, I don't he's still know, but he's saved in your in your category, right? Well, I mean, he, if the first truly believed. Don't. If
2: he's truly believed and he do, he does to say truly believed and he starts to do that, then again chastisement because the Bible says God chastises those whom he loves.
1: What if we see no evidence of chastisement? Again, he's been doing this for the last 40 years. It seems that the God is not judging him whatsoever.
2: How do we know that though? We're not God. We can't set a time limit and say, okay, God's going to judge this guy in five days, five months, five years. Maybe God's got an end result that we can't see though. What about that? I mean, we don't. Okay.
1: Okay. So let's, let's, let me go to, let's go away from hypotheticals and pedophiles and atheists. Let's go to people who refuse to feed the hungry, uh, give, uh, food to the needy uh, visit people and who are Christians. They have no Christian ch- uh, charity, no love whatsoever. Matthew 25. Um, are these people saved? Well, again, what do they believe? You, you see you' it sounds
2: like you're basing it on behavior and not what okay. did they truly believe though. I mean, so, it's so- questionable. You can question that, right? You can question it, but did they truly believe, did they truly believe in the Christ of the Bible or did they not? Now, it, it, it still sounds like you're you're saying a person that's a believer can maybe just stand just a little bit, but if they sin it like extreme, oh, they were never saved. But then we got to be careful. We get into categorizing certain sins. So, I mean, how, I, think, I mean, I think
1: the Bible does. I think the Bible, we can talk about that. Um, you feel free to ask me about that. Oh, yeah. Does, I guess it's your time. So the Bible does talk? categorize that. But, okay, so let me just ask you this uh, real quick. Um, it, it sounds like you're faulting me for looking at works as evidence of salvation. But so isn't that exactly what Jesus does in Matthew 25, when he puts one people on his right for visiting the sick and and loving Christians? Basically Christian piety, these people are saved. Lack of Christian piety, these people are not saved. So well, how, how are you faulting me for just doing what Jesus did? Well, first of all, that's actually out of context. Matthew 25 is the
2: dispensation He's talking about, the millennial kingdom, those that are cast out and those that will go in after Jesus comes at the second coming, that's a whole different kind of judgment. The judgment of the sheep
1: and goat nations, that's a whole different conversation there. Would you would you at least agree, verse, uh, verse 46, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you at least agree that these people, whoever they are, are going to hell and the other people, whoever they are, are going to glory, to paradise? Would you agree with that?
2: Because they're not, why are they going to hell? Because they're not righteous.
1: Yes. Which is demonstrated by their lack of Christian charity. So I guess what I'm saying is, so let's just, let me just ask you this. Do you believe that it's only Christians that are not saved by good works, but maybe millennial tribulation saints are saved by good works? Is that what you're suggesting?
2: no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. I still stand by what I said. You you have to be careful, and again, that passage has a context. You got to look at what is going, is happening there, and what's going on. Um, if you look at what someone does all the time, you you, you may question it,
1: but. Who are we to say? Who are we to say that this person okay, is saved us us out of it, because in this parable, it's not us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one saying the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed because you did this. And the king will say to those on his left, you be cursed and depart because you did not do this. So what I'm trying to figure out, forget are these tribulational saints or Jews or Christians, whoever. I'm asking for this group of people. How do you reconcile that Jesus is pointing to their Christian piety, their acts of charity, um, and 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 then accuse me of, of? How do you understand this passage? How is this not, in fact, pointing to good works to prove the fact that they were saved in the first place?
2: What you just said, you didn't believe that you have to prove
1: your your good works. You,
2: you just I, said read your have... statement.
1: Okay, I don't believe that we have to prove our good works to men or even to ourselves. I do believe, though, that our good works will, in fact, prove it's a litmus test, right? That it's a, if if you, if like you have gold, for example, you have gold, it's like, well, how do I know this is real gold? Well, you test it. The test doesn't make the gold real gold or not, the test just reveals the truthfulness of whether the gold was, in fact, real in the first place. And so what I believe is that good works are the litmus test for faith, and that's why I can read this passage, Matthew 25, and not be convinced that we're saved by good works, or anybody saved by good works, but at the same time not deny that good works is, in fact, the test that Jesus gives for whether people will enter the kingdom of God or not. So I'm just wondering, how do you reconcile the passage? Well, I mean, I just, I just see it as the context.
2: I mean, it's the judgment at the end of the tribulation, and he he mentions their righteousness. So the whole, it all backs up to righteousness. Those that are righteous, that's the whole key passage. That's the way I understand it.
1: Okay. Um, so in Galatians chapter six, it says, "Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that which he will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh." Corruption, but one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit eternal life. Um, do you agree that reaping from the spirit eternal life refers to paradise, final salvation?
2: Um, what what is the context of that passage?
1: I think the context of the passage is reaping and sowing and whether you're going to heaven or hell.
2: Based on reaping and sowing or
1: believing in Christ? Again, I think that this is another passage that is using good works as a litmus test. It is ultimately, it is ultimately uh, faith. It's faith alone that saves us, but that faith converts us, changes us so that we will now produce good works. But But Who
2: who, who is the test for though? Me, you, uh, your neighbor? I mean, who's, what's the test? Who's the test for?
1: I think it's for everybody. I mean, it's, it's for us to uh, make our calling election. Sure. It's for our neighbors Uh, to be able to identify false and true believers. So again,
2: I mean, I guess not to sound redundant, but it sounds like you're saying you have to have those good works to prove, to prove to somebody, to prove to everybody that, and if you don't, you're not saved. Am I interpreting that correctly?
1: No, I I guess, let me me just ask you this. Um, You made some statements uh, saying that, you know, the idea that a faith that works is somehow heretical or, or not true or something like that. Um, do you believe that's just an incoherent concept that we could be saved by uh, faith alone, but that faith would necessarily produce works? Is that just incoherent in your mind? Uh, I,
2: I I don't believe good works are automatic. No. Or else we wouldn't have to be commanded to do them. If they were automatic, Jesus wouldn't have to say, love your neighbor, love the Lord, your God, you know, feed your neighbor, follow me, whatever it may be. Uh, abide in me all those are commands well they're not automatic it's it, there has to be some room for growth in there or else we're in trouble if
1: we can't grow yeah well is it would you agree that there's a distinction between something being automatic and saying that this will necessarily follow uh, no i'm saying they're the same they're the same so so it couldn't be possible in your mind that it will necessarily follow that believers will obey the commands of christ but that doesn't mean that we're robots and that we're forced to obey every single command that, that there's no way, there's no room for that. And you, you, feel like there's no room for that in your category? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think,
2: uh, I mean, that it's, it's a choice. You have to choose to do it or else uh, what do you, you know, what about this passage Does it say we should walk in good works. Well, it doesn't say we will, it doesn't say we must. It says we should. Now we shouldn't live like the devil. We shouldn't do all these things we should. So we ha- that implies that we have a free will choice to choose. And if we choose wrongly, there are consequences. And so, and, and that's the whole thing about the free grace position. We're not saying go out and live like hell and the devil. There's no consequences. There are consequences, people There are consequences. Yeah.
1: But again, I just want to pressure on this. So it sounds like you're saying to me that it's just simply incoherent to believe that Christians will necessarily, because they're changed people, they're now good trees that will produce good fruit. Uh, it's an incoherent concept that they will be overall in an upward trajectory of holiness, but at the same time that they're not actually robots forced to obey any individual command. That those I, are just completely incoherent concepts for you. They they cannot work together.
2: I don't see. I don't see how it could. I mean, if you say that it's
1: automatic, well then no, you got to say it's I'm saying it's, it will necessarily follow the 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 Christian life. If I mean, think about this. If you have the Holy Spirit within within you a new heart, right? a new spirit. You have the fruits of the spirit popping up in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And you're telling me that none of that ever produces any actual love, joy, peace and patience in your life?
2: Well, I mean, it's everybody's on different levels. And how do, how do we know how much how much love? How much
1: Joy. How much I'm, peace, any, I'm not even. I'm not talking about comparing uh, one person to another. I'm. I'm just simply saying that a person who did not have the spirit, who was bearing only fruits of, you know, the works of the flesh, now does have the spirit. And it sounds like you're saying that it's possible that that fruit could produce nothing. I mean, this yeah, new certainly, fruit certainly. Could produce nothing because you know some saying? people, everybody's on different levels.
2: You, you can't say that one person is going to produce the same thing. One person may produce more. It's possible somebody could produce nothing. Yeah, possible. Okay. If you take somebody that that doesn't go to church, you take somebody that maybe has not been discipled properly.
1: Okay, you know, so... So how do you, just real quick here, we got like 20 seconds. How do you understand all the parables of Jesus where you have these wicked servants that go around beating the other servants or treating them bad and are cut up and thrown with the hypocrites? How do you understand all of Jesus' parables about these people? You're sounding like in your theology, they are victims of a lack of discipleship or something. This will save. But it sounds like in Jesus' uh, parables, they always end up in hell. So just quick, how do you understand that? What what parables? Which ones are you talking about? Well, we can go to Matthew chapter twenty-four, where it has that very parable, where he that there's a, a servant uh, waiting for their master to return, and then he sees that his master delayed, he beats the rest of his servants. Christ comes back, and he says he's going to come to pieces, and 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 apportion him with the hypocrites. So you're saying that that fruit there is getting or works are
2: guaranteed then according to that passage.
1: No, well, at that point, and I know it's your time. I'm just saying that that person's going to hell. Like that, that person is, this seems to be the exact opposite of what you're saying. You're saying, no, that person is just going to go to heaven. And I'm saying, no, it says right there in the text, the person is going to hell. which seems to be directly problematic what you're, what you're teaching. Well, you got, you, you got to look at John. Let's
0: give you, um, and, and John, go ahead, have a final response for this round. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to move into the final round of the discussion. Go ahead, John, final word there.
2: Uh, we can come back to that passage uh, at another time, but. um
0: Okay. Um, all right, let me restart the timer again, guys, very engaging discussion. Uh, I could probably listen to this all day. I, I tend to glance over at the clock and I'm like, wow, this is flying by. So great job for making this an awesome debate. Final round of 15 minutes. And, uh, it's going to be you, John leading the way, asking questions to JD. So gentlemen, go ahead. 15 minutes. Uh,
2: okay. All right, here we go. Um, <clears throat> so JD, how do you know when you've uh, how or how does a Christian know when they've truly believed? In Christ. How do you
1: know when you truly believe?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, if there have to be good works, if, if good works are automatic and obedience will follow, how do you know that person is
1: truly believed? Well, to be clear, I, I don't believe that good works are automatic. I think they necessarily will follow, but that doesn't mean they're automatic. Each individual good work um, is something that you're going to have to choose to obey and to do. Uh, but I just believe that when God changes your heart, then good works will follow. But each individual good work is not automatic; it is a decision that you need to make um, of uniting with the Spirit, I just think that you will. Now, I'm sorry, what was the original? Oh, how do you know you? How do you know you're saved? Right? How do you right, know you, you believe? Know, how do you know you right. believe? Yeah. Right. Um. I mean, this is like a question of saying, "How do I know that I love my wife? Because I do. I mean, I just know that I love my wife. I know that 15 years ago that I called upon the name of the Lord." Nobody was sitting here pressuring me. I mean, even if they did, I, I'm just saying nobody pressured me. I had no alternative motives. I know that I saw Jesus is beautiful and and asked him to save me. And, I, you know, I can't convince somebody else that it happened, but I don't need to be convinced. I know what happened. So, and works are not a part of that. Works are a part of that. So... So what i would say th- okay let me continue so i know the sincerity of what happened to me as i called upon the name of the lord right i also know how i felt after i asked the lord to save me i felt like a new person i felt like i was born again i read it in my bible i was born again i'm like oh, that's exactly what happened and then i saw my life change i saw my life go from gangs and drugs and sex and all this other stuff from addiction and pornography and everything else and i saw that those things were no longer appealing to me and even the things that were that I hated my sin now in a way that I didn't. And I've continued to grow in my faith. So, so yeah, this is, you know, it's like the Bible says that I'll get a new heart. And I'm like, yeah, look, I, I have a new heart. And the Bible says that I'll go from glory to glory. And I've seen that happen in my life. So this does give me more and more confidence, not only that the Bible is true, because it says these things and have happened to me, but that I am, in fact, on the road to salvation.
2: So based, what would you base your salvation on then? Belief in, in Christ alone
1: before any good works? My salvation is based on the blood of Jesus Christ applied to my account, washing away my sins. 100%. Okay. Okay. okay.
2: Second question. How do you know when you thoroughly repented? In other words, since all of us are not conscious of every sin. So let's say, for example, what if some sins are overlooked and not repented of? Yeah. So at what point do you think you've adequately repented when your attitude changes, when you change your conduct, when your conduct actually changes or when you make restitution or ask for forgiveness?
1: Yeah. So I think I adequately repented when I was in my bedroom and I thought about my girlfriend. I thought about the life of sin that I was going to have to give up. I knew that I could not continue to live in this lifestyle and claim uh, to to be uh, to, to claim Jesus. And I said, you know what? I'm taking Jesus anyways, right? Uh, I think as soon as I I, I recognized, I counted the cost. I recognized that here's what basically happened. I knew that by picking Jesus, he was going to kill my son. Not that I was going to kill my son. I knew that by picking Jesus, the girlfriend was going to go. I did not break up with her immediately, but I knew that this was a, a fundamental trajectory that was going to take away all of those things. And I turned away from sin. I said, you know what? I want Jesus anyways. Uh, I think that that is what the Bible is talking about, about repentance. And that's all you need to do. Now, what you are talking about is uh, my continued life of repentance, of me continuing to change my mind and continuing to be conformed to God and continue to give up more sin. That's not salvific at all. That is discipleship. That's completely discipleship. And I'm not more or less losing my salvation.
2: Okay, well, let me back up to the first question. Maybe I asked too many and a little bit of a, a block there. So, I mean, what if you overlooked some sins when you were repenting? When you repented of the girlfriend, the drugs, the gangs, whatever? What if you overlooked? Let's just say you had bad language, or you had, I don't know, pride or greed or whatever. What if you? What if yeah. you forgot to include those? Would you still be have been saved?
1: Well, I, again, the the everybody has their pet sin, their their besetting sin, the things that are the sins that uh, cling most closely to them. Like, so at the time, you know, and I still don't, I don't drink. So I didn't have to give up drinking. I didn't have to give up uh, possibly drinking, uh, to come to Jesus because it just wasn't on the radar. But I guess what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to communicate to you, um, is when I gave my life to Jesus at 15, I knew I was handing him the keys of the kingdom, namely me. I said, Jesus, you are the keys you drive, you take me where you want to go. Um, So it wasn't so much about, you know, listing X, Y, and Z. The girlfriend just happened to be something that I enjoyed and something that was immediate, right? That I could think of. But uh, the the point is that I gave him all the keys, everything. Um, And so he could take me wherever he wanted to go. So just real quick example. um, I found out, I didn't know that the Bible had anything to say about child rearing and having, getting married and having kids. But when I did find out, Um, since I gave Jesus the keys, then I knew his way was going. I couldn't just tell him what I was going to do in that matter. I was like, okay, this is what the Bible says about that. So I'm going to do it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll move on. Um,
2: so how do you know when you've completely committed to Christ's lordship? Let's say you, when you were saved, you know, you say you were committed. If you want to use the term commitment, that's what typical lordship, uh, uh, language is so. How do you know when? You, how do you know for certain that you completely committed? How do you know
1: that? Yeah, I don't like that language because it, it wasn't about. Uh, I mean, well, you got to understand. Also, I got saved again. I got saved at fifteen. I never heard of Lordship. I never heard of John McCarthy Well, I did hear of John MacArthur, but I never heard of Lordship at all, right? I just knew that the Bible called me to repent of my sins. I mean, I, I just knew that that's what it was telling me to do. And how did I know? I knew because I said, I literally said to God, you don't have to say this, but this is what I said. I said, God, if you'll take me, you can have me. I handed myself over to him. I mean, that's it. Like I had nothing else to give. I gave him myself. Um, and so what else could I give him other than me?
2: Okay. Um, and and I would have a problem with, I know we talk about those terms make Lord Jesus, yeah, make yeah. Jesus, Lord, make him your savior, make him, we don't make him do anything. And I think you said you agreed with that. You didn't like that either. But as far as I don't like the term gave my life to Christ, because it may, it puts the point on well, what I did. I prefer to say he gave himself for me and to me because it's I, a right, right, me.
1: But I, I still I still did what I did. Right. I can't deny that I gave my life to Christ. Now, was the spirit working in me? Um, you know how monergistic or synergistic? That's a whole debate about Calvinism. I want to get into. The point is, though, right. I'm telling you that I told Jesus, here's the keys. Now, if he was how much he was working in my heart behind the scenes is irrelevant in my mind i still am the one who cried out i'm still the one who jumped on the cross uh and and said please save me right um so i'm not when i say i gave my life to jesus that is not to say that god didn't do anything behind the scenes i'm just telling you what happened on my experience is i say god you can have me and that's what happened
2: so you you believe at that point you uh you truly you you were converted you were born again
1: i know i was born again i I absolutely there's no convincing me that i wasn't born again
2: okay okay i want to read a couple of quotes here um, and I just want you to tell me if you agree or disagree. Okay. Uh, they're from Lordship proponents. Uh, John MacArthur, for example, uh, in his book, the gospel according to Jesus, uh, on page one ninety-seven, uh, says no one can come to Christ on any, any other term than full commitment. Would you agree with that statement or disagree?
1: Uh, it depends on what he means. If what he means is, um, nobody can come to Christ. And at the same time, uh, say, I'm just going to continue to live in my sin, but I'm just going to come to Christ anyways. And then, no, I, yeah, I agree with that. If he means by that uh, promising to be perfect, then I of course disagree. Right. So you would say, uh,
2: would you affirm or deny that full commitment? I'm talking 100% commitment uh, to Christ. You, you promise to obey. You promise you'll never sin. You promise you'll turn uh-huh. from all your sins. Is that required for salvation or, and if it is, then how do you rectify that between getting saved and then uh, living a the life of discipleship?
1: Yeah. Again, I, I, I think that um, the way I got saved is the way that uh, people need to get saved. Right. Um, is to recognize that you cannot continue to live in gross unrepentant sin and claim to be a Christian. And so I think that that is what the Bible talks about, about counting the cost of saying, if I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give him my life. Um, I mean, come as you are, right. But you're not going to stay the way you are. And I, I you know, we have, we have to understand that people know that, I mean, you don't even have to say that to somebody. People know that if I give my life to Christ, I can't get drunk every day. Like that's just people recognize that. Okay.
2: So again, we go back to, to, so yeah. would you say that if somebody gets drunk five times or I don't know. Let's say three times. It's all it's all sinful. Are you saying it's more sinful if they do it more times than one or five? Well, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that sin can increase in, in his heinousness based on uh, the circumstances, based on the duration, based on the intensity. So somebody's drunk because they drunk three beers It's not nearly as bad as because they drunk 20 beers. I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like, of, of course, you can get worse and worse. And somebody who got drunk three times is not nearly as bad as somebody who got drunk 50 times. Um, now, I, I think what you're kind of pressing me on, you've asked me this in multiple different ways, is like, well, can you drink 49 times or 50 times? And the Bible doesn't get to that level of specificity, right? It's all circumstantial and, and all these other things. The point is that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, that's the point. Um, and if you are drinking as a Christian, you need to repent. And if you continue to drink and, and you refuse to repent, there does come to a, a common point where I don't know. Uh, But there does come to a point where other believers should start to question your salvation. The Holy spirit will be grieved and he will withdraw from you. So he will no longer be confirming with your spirit, that you're a child of God. And you should start questioning your own salvation. And this should cause you to repent and to turn back to Jesus. It shouldn't cause you to start trusting your works or anything else. It should just cause you to run back to Christ.
2: So, okay. So I think I can understand most of that, what you were saying. So, now, when you're talking about uh, repentance, are you saying you're saying now it's turning
1: from sin? You're not saying it's a change of mind. No, it's, uh, once again, it's a change of mind. The, the mind controls the actions, right? So as long as you think that that's sin, taking drunkenness, as long as you think that's a good time, and something that's worthy of your attention, you'll continue to drink. Uh, but before you ever stop putting the bottle down, you have to look at the bottle differently. You have to say, you know what? This is no longer a good time. It's no longer joy, but this is pain and misery and death. And this is no longer something I should indulge in, but something I shouldn't for the sake of Christ. Um, and so repentance of the changing of mind leads to the change of action. And again, the change of action is just a proof or an evidence that you change your mind. Don't tell me you change your mind and you continue to do the same thing. You didn't change your mind. If you would have, you would have stopped. Okay. How much time, Donnie?
0: You've got uh, just over three minutes.
2: Oh, okay, good. But it, it sounds like you're backtracking and re- repeating yourself again when you said you just said something about proof you have to have the proof there. And we're, we're back on that. I feel like we're on a scratch record here. You have to, you some way have to prove you're saved. I
1: don't it's remember proof. saying, I don't remember saying that we're proved and we've talked about, it. you want to talk about it again? Um, uh, no, I mean,
2: That's just what you just said in your statement there. You meant you said something about proving having to prove.
1: If I did say that, I did not mean that.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, you said you do see a distinction in discipleship and salvation, correct? Absolutely, yes. The, they're related, but yet they're two different things. So would you say that uh, you would not mix terms like John MacArthur, like follow, obey, deny yourself, take up your cross, all that, as salvific verses, or are they discipleship verses? I think many of them you... are.
1: Many of them are uh, salvific verses. Yes, I do. Okay. I, I think we
2: disagree with that because justification. I'll just hit these real quick. Justification it happens in salvation. Discipleship is sanctification, progressive.
1: Yeah, salvation
2: is by grace. Discipleship is by works. Salvation is through faith. Discipleship is through faithfulness. Salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. Salvation is about Christ's love for me. Discipleship is about my love for Christ. Salvation's is Christ's commitment to me and discipleship is my commitment to Christ. And so, and on and on we could go. So I see a clear distinction between those two. And the problem I have with the Lordship view is they take verses like that and say, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, hate your mother, hate your father. Who in this world could do all those commands? I mean, there's hundreds of them. If we have to yeah. do all that to get saved then we're in trouble.
1: Yeah. So my response is this. I mean, it is possible that perhaps some of those passages is referring to discipleship. Perhaps, and we need to uh, examine uh, the context of all of them to see if, in fact, that is the case. Uh, But I think a lot of times, uh, what's what it's talking about—the costliness of discipleship of following up to Christ—is the rejection of the world, is the hatred of the world, is um, you know the uh, the love of sin. I mean, you go you go back to. I mean, there's only really two reasons why people don't come to Christ. There's really there's only two. Uh, They're too in love with their sin and don't want to give it up, or they're uh, terrified of what will happen to them by way of persecution and trials and tribulations if they come to Christ. And so I think a lot of the verses that you're uh, quoting, like if you don't love mother and father more than me, that's in the context of Muslims and Jews killing you because you convert. And yeah, if you're not willing, if, if you're not willing to take uh, potentially Muslims killing you um, in order to follow Christ, then you're not worthy of him. That's 100% true. But
2: but again, so you're you're saying discipleship is a part of salvation. If you, if you go with that,
1: no, I, I think what we disagree, John, is whether some of these passages do refer to discipleship rather than uh, refer to conversion. But we certainly agree that there is a category called conversion and a category called discipleship and they should not be conflated.
2: Okay, okay. So, okay, we can we can go with that. There we go.
0: There we go, gentlemen. Time has flown by. We've endeared to the end of the hour discussion. Great job to the <laughs> both of you. Um, I got to say that, hour flew by you know it might not feel that way to you guys since you you, you know you guys were the debaters in the octagon itself but this was a uh, a much anticipated debate and uh you know you gentlemen did not disappoint so we've had over 120 people in the chat with about 120 questions so hope, oh, uh, wow. hope you guys are ready to be here till tomorrow <laughs> uh, before- <laughs> Yeah. but before we get to the questions of course we're going to wrap up our thoughts and points in the form of a concluding statement and uh pastor JD martin you did start us off tonight so why don't we hand it over to you five minutes concluding statement whenever you're ready
1: and let me let me said this time sorry okay. uh, i just want to thank uh John and and Donnie and everybody for, uh, for having having me on and the show I really appreciate it. Um, to me, here's the here's the real issue. Uh, to me, what does Christ say? <laughs> I mean, we can we can slice and dice. I think uh, uh, the the problem with that me and John are having often comes to uh, some dispensationalism, um, taking verses and applying it to that was then, this is now, or that will be future, and this is not now. It is odd because. Uh, unless he's like a, a full on classical dispensationalist believing that there were two different paths of salvation, I think it's completely irrelevant. Uh, you know, because if you agree that the Jews uh, back then or future Jews during the tribulation will be saved uh, the same way we are, then these passages still apply. And to me, the, here's the heart of the matter um, when God converts you, when you're a new creation, when the oldest pass away and the newest come, will that necessarily produce? Uh, changes in your life. Will you become a new creation? Could you become a new creation and nothing is new? Come on. You're a new creation. You've experienced the power of a living God. He's taken off the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in and he's created a new spirit. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you. He's cleansed you from your sins. Nothing is new. No fruit of the spirit nothing zip zap zero you live just as ungodly as before this happened as after nobody knows you're converted besides the thing that you say but you live just like the devil no changes happen in your life but supposedly you're saved uh it, it's it is interesting and i do appreciate the fact that john at least believes uh that you can't have an atheist believer and that's just absurd it's ridiculous you have an atheist who's saved he's a believing atheist come on this is crazy uh, i'm just extending it beyond that and saying not only can you have uh not an atheist believer but you cannot have a Fornicating believer. Now that's not a believer who fornicates. That's a fornicating believer. That's someone who is living unrighteousness. And that says people think, well, that's not that's not true. What about David? David did not live in unrighteousness. David fell in unrighteousness. The word of God's clear. Do not be deceived. You know why it says that? Because people are deceived. The unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. These are sexually immoral, nor idolaters, no adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, no thieves, no greedy, no drunkards, no vilers, no swindlers. These will not enter the kingdom of God. That's what it says. They will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, but you were washed, regenerated, sanctified, and were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my heart, and my conviction is, look, if you're justified, guess what? You'll be on the path of sanctification. You will go on sanctification, and guess what? The reason you're entering sanctification is because you have been washed, because you have been regenerated. Jesus is clear. You do not pick good fruit from bad trees. And what was so concerning to me is John is declaring bad trees as actually good. Oh, yeah, despite the bad fruit in there, because I don't want to be a fruit inspector and all this other stuff, uh, that this is actually a good tree going to heaven. Even though in Matthew chapter 17, it explicitly says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and you will recognize them by the fruit. But John says, no, it's not just John not picking on John. The people who hold to this say, no, in fact, that is a good tree and it's heading to heaven and it's just losing their rewards unless The fire here doesn't refer to hell, but refers to simply losing rewards. And there's something seriously wrong with this exegesis. And in fact, the Bible is very clear. There's so many passages. You cannot possibly argue that all these passages, or at least none of them, refer to hell. That's all I need. All I need is one passage that talks about uh, that bad trees go to hell to completely dispel this theology. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of passages like that. In Matthew chapter 7, we have that terrifying passage. It's terrifying. It's supposed to be terrifying. People say, Lord, Lord, but end up in hell. Why? Because they're workers of lawlessness. Yes, they're, this is, again, th- there are difficulties. Yes, there's a there's a sense that we don't always know everything that everybody's doing, and we can be hasty, and this can be abused, and all that other stuff, right? But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jesus told people to be fruit inspectors for a reason. John says, don't. Jesus says, do. Please believe Jesus, and not John. I asked John about Matthew 25 and about the fact that Jesus at the judgment points to people's works. Look, guys, I'm trying to protect you from Rome. And I just want you to believe the truth of the, God, the truth of the Bible. These passages are in the Bible. How are you going to talk to a Catholic apologist who points you to Matthew 25 and says, Look, the judgment is based on works. How are you going to defend sola fide that we're saved by faith alone and Jesus points to works? How? How do you explain James? Faith without works is dead. How do you explain it? I'm trying to show you how you can do it. That we're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. The last thing I'll say, I didn't really get to touch on this, but I think I heard John say, you don't have to persevere. You don't have to persevere. Come on, guys. The Bible is clear. Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. You must have good works. You must persevere, but you're saved by faith alone and never the faith that is alone. Thank you.
0: Thank you, JD Martin, for that five minute concluding statement. Uh, John, John Crawford, we're going to hand it over to you now. You also have five minutes uh, for a concluding statement. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Okay. All right. Uh, we do have some agreements. We do have some disagreements. And it sounds like, and I'm not picking on JD either, but he's still hung up on works. Um, works do not save. You don't have to have works prior to salvation. You don't have to have works. After salvation to keep your salvation. Now, good works are not automatic, or the Bible would not say in several verses, we should walk in the newness of life. We should walk in good works. We should. But yet, JD's saying, oh no, they're going to happen automatically. And we have to judge people by their works. Again, Jesus is the one that's going to judge the works. And by the way, he doesn't make a distinction between the great white throne judgment. In Revelation 21, which is judgment for lost people, and uh, the judgment seat of Christ, which is for born-again people. Both will be judged for works. Christians uh, judge for their degree of rewards. People that will end up in the lake of fire will be judged for their uh, degrees of sinfulness, and, and they'll have degrees of punishment. But ultimately, why a person goes to hell is they're condemned. They don't have eternal life. Uh, The Bible tells us that in 1 John 3, 18, that those that didn't believe that Jesus is the son of God are condemned already. And then Revelation 21 says, those names that were not found in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire because they did not have eternal life. Now, I don't have time to, I wish we'd had more time to do a discussion on James chapter 2. That, of course, is a typical lordship go-to verse uh, that teaches that uh, good works are a necessary component to prove. Uh, I know JD keeps saying he's not proving salvation, trying to prove salvation. But every verse he goes to, he's saying, "Ah, oh, you got to have, you know, the good tree, the bad tree. You got to prove good works." Well, no, you don't. You don't have to prove it to anybody. You should have good works, and there are consequences uh, for those of us that don't. When James is talking there, he's not talking about. Uh, He's talking to save people, first of all. He's not talking about losing salvation or saying that somebody has to prove they're not saved. He's talking about the quality of the believer's life and that they should. It's discipleship. It's a discipleship passage. It doesn't say that they're good. uh, They're necessarily going to have good works. He's talking about, uh, and he also asked the question, what does it profit? In other words, if you don't have good works, it's not going to profit your brother The lost person out here is not going to profit yourself at the judgment seat of Christ. James talks about that. He's not saying you're not saved if you don't have good works or you have to prove good works. That is a false theology and therefore should be rejected. And it seems like JD keeps, to me, seems like he keeps going back uh, to that. We are not guaranteed to have good works or the Bible would tell us, would not have to command us to do it if it was automatic and we were saying, okay, I'm going to do all these good works then what are they? How many? Uh, What's the quality? What's the quantity? You see, one fruit inspector may may say, oh, you got to have five good works or 10 or 15. Another one may say, no, you've only got to have a couple. Where do you draw the line? So it gets totally meshed together when people are fruit inspectors. You go back to, to what the person believed. Now, should their behavior be different? It should. I'm not arguing that it shouldn't. It's a straw man if anybody says, well, you don't believe in living godly. I never once said that. Free grace does not teach that. We should live godly. We should live holy. But that should be not to get saved or to stay saved at front loads and back loads of the gospel. We should be able to have good works because we will be accountable to stand before Jesus Christ. But we don't have to prove it to anybody. Lordship says you have to commit. You got to repent. You got to do all this stuff to get saved. Oh, then, oh, by the way, you got to believe. And then if you don't live a life consistent with that belief, either you were never saved if you didn't persevere, or if you're Arminian you were saved and you sinned and you lost it. There are carnal believers. First Corinthians chapter three I talked about the Ephesian believers that held, you know, held onto their magic books two years after they were saved. Now, the Lordship would look at those people and say, oh, they were never saved. Look at them. They were carnal they were living like the devil. Well, God is the judge of that. And a true believer, if they've truly been believed, uh, tr- truly believed in Christ, God will, ju- he's the ultimate judge. It's not up to us to, to go finger pointing and, and criticize somebody and condemn somebody. Uh, but also, my opponent agreed on one hand, Matthew 6 says we got to go into our prayer closets and pray, but God will reward us openly. But then he also contradicted and says, oh, no, you got to do good works. Well, you, you know, you can't that just doesn't mesh together at all so i'm simply saying grace is free and jesus christ gives us that when we believe upon him the grace of god and justification is an unconditional free gift
0: okay there we go five minutes, five minutes
2: okay okay wow
0: I know it 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 flies by. It's hard to believe it's already been two hours.
2: I had more, but that's the best I could do within five minutes.
0: <laughs> no worries. No worries. That concludes the five minutes concluding statement. Uh, J.D. Martin, John Crawford, thank you so much for a fantastic debate. You know, soteriology, salvation, nothing more important. So I do appreciate you both doing this debate and what I'll do since we could be answering questions for the next 24 hours, is I'm gonna put a, a timer here of about 25 minutes and we'll get through as many questions as we can. And um, what we typically do here, John, I guess it's your first time here, so I'll just kind of reiterate, is uh, for the audience Q&A, in order that we can move along nice and smooth, Uh, Whoever the question is for, we'll make sure they get the last uh, word. So say the question's for JD, we'll let him answer. John, you can give your response, your feedback, and then we would hand it to JD for a final word. Um, Okay, well, we've got a lot here, and so um, I guess we'll just start right at the beginning, and I'll make sure that it's all on topic. Questions for you, gentlemen. So first one comes in from the Layman Seminary, and it also looks like... um, There's an after show and it's on the layman seminaries, uh, channel. So Charles, if you want to post the link in the chat, feel free to do so. Anytime there's an after show, just let me know and I'll do my best to uh, give it a shout out. So JD question for you, how do you personally, how do you personally know you are saved since you have not persevered until the end of your life?
1: Yeah. So, um, here's the, here's the reality. Um, there are different levels of salvation. That sounds really heretical and terrible to say that. But the thing is, the Bible talks about being being saved, saved, and will be saved. And as far as how do I know, when he says, how do you know that you'll be saved? I think he's talking about finally saved. How do I know I'll be glorified, receive a new body, live on the new earth? And the fact of the matter is, I do not know with absolute infallible certainty that that is in fact true. I could be deceived. I could fall away and I could prove uh, that I was an unbeliever. Um, I have no reason to believe that is the case because I know that I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord. I know that I believed in my heart. I've experienced regeneration. Um, And most importantly, what I always tell people is this. um, I don't look backwards primarily for my assurance. I look currently for my assurance. Currently right now, Romans chapter 8, that His Spirit confirms with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Currently, right now. I can also see that I'm not just self-deceived. No, I'm not perfect. No, I do not not sin. But I can see that as I look at those vice lists and I say, am I characterized by those things? And I would say, no. And by the way, I'm an elder of a church. And so just as I can see positively that I'm characterized by the qualification of an elder, I can also see negatively that I'm not characterized by these negative attributes. Now, of course, you can always become uncharitable. And, you know, everybody, if you an uncharitable reading is not qualified to be an elder or is finding themselves in the center's list. But we don't have there, there's no reason to be that extreme um, on that reality. So I hope that answers the question.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, J.D. John, we'll hand it over to you for your response. John, I think oh, John, you might have muted yourself.
2: There we go. Sorry. Uh, perseverance of the saints, first of all, is a Calvinistic doctrine, which I don't subscribe to because I'm not a Calvinist, but that's another debate. Uh, Calvinists typically look back. JD says he doesn't look back, but that's what the majority of Calvinists do. Maybe he's a different type of Calvinist. I don't know, but it looks to works for assurance. And in fact, most Calvinists can't even be sure they're saved because they look back at their works and say, well, I didn't persevere enough. I hope and pray by the time I get to my deathbed, I've done enough good works to prove or to show, or to bear enough fruit to show that I'm saved, and the problem with that is many, because you got several. Pro- How many works? How much? What's the quality? What's the quantity? Uh, and who's the judge of that? Who, what makes us our own? You know, inspectors ourselves to say, well, I've done enough good work, so I guess I'm saved, or maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Now, the bottom line is, if somebody's believed in Christ, he is. It's it's. If you want to use the term preservation of the saints, something he does, that's better. They're to say that I have to persevere. Now he's going to preserve me because he promised he would do that once I received the gift of everlasting life. So appreciate it there, John
0: and JD question was for you. You get the last word.
1: No, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, to be clear, I I said that I I do look back in the sense that I I look back to see it was I haven't converted, but my primary assurance is not a doctrine. My primary assurance is the experience of the Holy spirit. And that's what I tell anybody. Uh, If your primary experience is some doctrine, then where's the Holy Spirit in your life? Why isn't the thing, the reason that you know you're a child of God is because the Holy Spirit tells you that you're a child of God. And that's where I rest. Um, And as far as will I endure to the end, of course, I believe it's the the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to get me there. So I, I, I agree with that.
0: Thank you, JD and John, for your responses. Charles, appreciate the question. So next question is going to be for you, John. So this one comes in from Praise I Am. Praise I Am. Thank you for the question. He asks, question for John. James compares not having works as being spiritually dead in James 2.26. In brackets, he puts many scholars affirm. Does John believe spiritually dead people are saved? Go ahead, John.
2: Well, first of all, you have to look at the, again, you got to learn how to do an exegesis and do some word studies. Uh, the word dead there, or some people here are saying the South, dead, <laughs> little pun there. Uh, dead there does not mean that they never had faith because James is clearly writing to Christians. He, does, he says that in, in James chapter one, the, it talks about the Christians being scattered abroad, which were Jewish. So he's already writing to Christians. So there's no, I don't think there's no such thing as a dead faith. There's either, you either have faith or you have no faith. There's no such thing as a dead faith. And what he's talking about there, being dead, in other words, what does it profit? It's useless. It's no good. So he's not talking about uh, spiritually dead people. So the, the question is actually, has a fallacy in it. He's not talking about spiritually dead people because if he's talking to Christians, if he's talking to Christians, and again, if you hold to that view of James 2, that they don't have works, I guess they they were never saved or they're not saved. If you're Arminian, they lose it. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying it's unprofitable. It's useless. So, no, I don't believe that spiritually dead people are saved because he's not he's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual people that are saved that should have good works to be profitable.
1: for He's talking about.
0: All right. Thank you, John. Uh, J.D. Yeah, go ahead. Your response.
1: Yeah, I, I really wish and um, this is probably bad on me. I really wish we would have talked about uh, James uh, two more, but hopefully everybody recognized the passage the, to me it's very clear. Um, faith without works is dead, just as a body without a spirit is dead, so is faith without works is dead, I always ask people, can a dead faith save you, in fact, the text says that, can such a faith save you, the answer is no, the devils believe and they tremble, Um, this is exactly, I mean, this passage is literally written to refute the free grace position, it is literally written to refute the free grace position, and yet they still hold to it, it's unbelievable, Uh, I mean, God really inspired a passage so people would not do this, I mean, This is exactly what's going on here. James is saying, listen, if you have faith and do not have works, it is dead. It is useless. You're going to hell. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. And it's really sad when people will actually say, no, if you have faith without works, you're going to heaven. I mean, this is why uh, I I think that this uh, misunderstanding is is pretty serious. um, Because the stakes are pretty high when you tell someone who's going to hell that they're actually going to heaven.
0: Thank you, JD and John. You get the last word. The question was for you this time. Go
2: ahead. Um, I totally disagree with that because again, that goes back to the lordship. The lordships, quote this out of context, as JD has. You can't be a saved person and say at the same time, if you don't have works, you, you're if you don't have those works, you're going to hell because that's based. On it, that's what lordship does. It it either backloads the gospel or frontloads the gospel. James is saying that you're, and also the word save there is not referring. We see the word saved. Get a lexicon, a Greek dictionary. Look it up. It does not always mean condemnation from hell every time you see it. Save there is used in more of a, a general term. Like, for example, if I say, "Well, you know, um, my wife saved me from getting in trouble at work," you know, or she calmed me down from my temper, whatever it may be. Save is not used in that sense there. If you look it up in the look it up in the Greek, just don't take my word for it. See it for yourself. Save there does not mean condemnation from hell, because if it does. That is based upon your works. And again, it's what the Lordship does. It uses these verses out of context, isogetically to to superimpose works. If you don't have works, basically you're going to hell. That's what he said. And that's utterly false and should be rejected.
0: Okay, thank you so much, uh, John, for that final word. So next question um, comes in from... Here we go. Nicholas, proclaimer of Messiah. Thank you so much, Nicholas. He says, question for JD. Salvifically, are we judged by Christ's works or for our own works? If you were judged for your works, would you also go to hell? Go ahead, JD. Hmm.
1: Uh, This is actually kind of a trick question because it's actually all the above, right? Um, if you were judged by your own works exclusively, you go to hell. Absolutely. You, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is in Christ. Jesus is eternal life. So yeah, we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so, you know, you're saved by faith and it's a gift. You are condemned based on your works. So there's that answer. Uh, but there's also a reality that are we judged for our own works? Yeah, there is the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the things I like about the free grace I don't really like the free grace. <laughs> I like free grace people. I don't like free grace. But the one thing that they get right is what I'm trying to say is they do emphasize the fact that the Bible does talk about rewards and punishments. And so we should not forget that. So we are also judged as Christians based on our good works and probably based on our bad works, too, canceling out some of those good works, and we will be rewarded uh, accordingly. And same thing with people in hell. They're also judged based on their works, um, and they will be punished correspondingly based on, on their evil works. Let me just say one other thing we do see the phenomenon oftentimes in the uh in the bible that judgment whether you're going to heaven or hell is actually based on works, and we have to that may make us feel uncomfortable but we have to understand we have to recognize that that does happen and we need to be able to understand what's going on there. And I think the best understanding of that is, in fact, this Lippmann says idea that if we see the good works, then we can know that the faith is behind it. And so pointing to the good works proves the faith, uh, but we're not ultimately saved by works.
0: Appreciate it, J.D. Uh, John, we'll hand it over to you for your, for your response.
2: Uh, again, uh, if I can just respond to J.D., I'll respond to this. I, I agree with most of that. Um The question here, um, are we judged by Christ's work or for our works? Well, obviously, yeah, everybody's going to be judged for their works. Lost people, Revelation 21, to determine the degrees of punishment. If you study that, that's why there's a whole list of sins to determine their, their degrees of punishment. The reason they end up in hell is because their name's not found in the book of life. And again, I go back to John 3, 18. It says they're condemned, also Mark 16 says, for a lack of belief in Christ. If a sinner gets saved and goes to heaven because of Christ, therefore a lost sinner that doesn't know Christ and dies without Christ ends up in hell because they don't have everlasting life. So uh, just to address this a little more, um, again, we keep going. We're like a broken record here. I feel like I'm just going in circles. But good works don't prove you're saved again. Um, now, somebody might ask, you know, why you do a certain thing? Why do you do that? But that's not necessarily proof because we don't always know. We're not with somebody 24-7. We don't know what they do behind the scenes. Again, Matthew 6 says, go pray in private. So we're going to reward you openly. Uh, sometimes good works are secret. So they're not always done in the open. And in fact, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and Sadducees for doing that very thing. Hey, look, I'm praying. I'm tithing. I'm, I'm doing all this. I'm doing that. And then in Matthew 7, uh, you know, those, those people, lost people will have works, which will be the, the great white throne revelation 20, and they end up in hell because they thought that their works were going to get them to heaven. So anyway, that's my response.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Jay or er, John JD, we'll give you the final response.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know why the secret works of believers or, um, the hypocritical works of believers being, being even brought up. Um, the fact we're talking about God's judgment, not necessarily man's judgment. Again, the, the idea, if we're talking about man's judgment, it's not, you know, you can trick men. So if you're going around killing people in the middle of the night, nobody knows, and you're not going to be excommunicated. Everyone's going to think you're a believer. What happens when we find out you've been killing people in the middle of the night? We're going to question your salvation. That's just completely normal. And I, I even think, I don't want to put words in John's mouth, but I even think he's admitted that he's going to question your salvation and be going around killing people in the middle of the night. Um, why? Because this doesn't seem like behavior that's compatible with a christian and, and i'm saying that that's what the bible teaches it, te- it teaches that if you're changed you will have change and uh and your your works will uh, at some point correspond to that change is, is it always exactly the same for every individual no we all have our differences we all start at different levels we get that but we don't expect you to be killing people in the middle of the night i mean uh, to me that's just pretty simple
0: Okay, thank you, uh, JD, for the final word. Okay, I'm going to get a couple of these super chats in here. I do want to thank everybody for the super uh, chat, super stickers, and and the support. You guys are the life and blood of this channel, and it's why we're able to pump out full-time content. So God bless you. Uh, pure Aussie Gold, he says, uh, great rapid fire discussion, guys. I totally agree. You guys did a great job. Uh, well done getting these guys together, Donnie. And I see f- a few more of these. God bless. God bless you as well. Uh, steadfast and easy, five dollars super chat. He says, "Good back and forth, respectful." So there you go. You guys are superstars. Um, if this was live, you'd be signing autographs afterwards. i <laughs> Just kidding. So I don't know about you know. that, but anyway, <laughs> might be worth millions of dollars one day. You never know. Hey, hey,
2: make us all rich, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. So Bring here we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nori Davis, question for you, uh, JD. And Nori asks, if a child is disobedient to their parents. Is that proof they are not actually his or her parents? Or are the two completely unrelated? Babes in Christ is how we all start. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. Um, no, a child being disobedient to his parents doesn't prove um, that they're not their kid. Um, and at the same time, Christ does say that if we are children, then, then he will uh, discipline us. So actually, a lack of discipline is a. Suggestion that we're not his children. But let me just kind of spin this in a different direction. Um, The Bible talks about be holy for I am holy. And so we all know the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so if you are a child of God, then you will resemble him. And if you have no resemblance of uh, your parent, there's a good possibility you're not that child, right? Think about it. Like, think think about if you have a kid and you're supposedly supposed to be fathering that kid. This is supposed to be half of you. And and you look at the kid and look absolutely nothing like you. In fact, imagine if your skin is, uh, you know, whatever it is. Let's say like you're super dark and your wife's super dark or you're super light and your wife's super light, whatever it is. And your kid has completely different complexion, completely different eyes, completely different nose, completely different hair, completely different everything. Wouldn't a person with common sense eventually say like, I think I need a DNA test because this is weird. I'm starting to wonder if this is my kid. And that's what I'm saying, that that's not the way it is with, uh, with God's kids god's kids resemble at some level not all kids look exactly like their parents but at some level they resemble their parents and that's called holiness
2: thank you JD john uh anything you'd
1: like um,
0: to add go ahead
2: I, I like i like her question what she's saying is basically if you have a a, a, a child that's disobedient does that proven, like she said does it prove he's not the kid of course not now to kind of respond to what jD said uh someone could be adopted they might not have the same hair the same nose the same eyes the same ear they could be adopted to still be their child And the Bible tells us we're adopted, you know, predestined to adoption as as sons. And so a kid could be adopted and still belong to the parents and still be disobedient, but still be adopted legally and practically and still belong to the parents. Although they might not have naturally given birth to the child. But anyway, that's I know that's probably a maybe I'm getting off topic a little bit, but that's to address our question. Uh, So we do start as babes in Christ, which implies we have to grow. And everybody's on different levels. You might be more mature than me. I might be more mature than you. So that's why we can't judge, you know, all these works. Well, look what I'm doing. Well, look what I'm doing. Well, you know, it's just, it just gets insane after a while when you start trying to judge, you know, how many works somebody has or what the quality is.
0: Appreciate it, John. And uh, JD, question was for you. Get the last word.
1: Yeah, as far as the adoption, I mean, certainly, I I, I think, John, that was a good off the hip shot, and and you're right. I mean, adopted kids cannot resemble you, and the Bible does say that you know we're adopted. But I, I think the Bible also says that that which is born of spirit is spirit, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that we're the children of God through the Holy Spirit, regenerating us and making us new creatures. Um, so it, the Bible doesn't merely communicate the the metaphor of adoption; it does communicate the metaphor of of being an actual offspring of of Christ. Uh, but again, I think we don't want to pack too much in the metaphors. I think that's kind of the, the what this shows that if we play too much with metaphors then we can fall off the cliff i think it's what does the bible teach about the relationship between faith and good works and do good works necessarily follow those who believe and i think the answer is yes and i don't build that primarily based on a metaphor
0: all right thank you uh, nori for your question And again, uh, J.D. and John, thanks for your answer. So another super chat comes in, Victory Street Ministry. Uh, Appreciate the support and questions. So this one's again for you, J.D. And he asks, does one have to stop sinning prior to salvation to occur and slash, or do they have to do good works to stay saved? Or is one saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing? Uh, JD, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I love the way this question is is worded because I think it's it's a good example of something what we call the excluded middle. Um, it's not there's a missing option here, and it's that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing, and uh, that we will go on to live uh, changed lives. Um, but does one have to stop sinning prior to salvation to occur? Absolutely not. You know. Um, you come to Jesus just as I am, Billy Graham, just as I am. I mean, that's 100% true. Do they have to have good works to stay saved? Nobody is nobody stays saved based on their good works. Um, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that you can forfeit it because you did too many bad works or something like that. Um, I, I don't believe—I I I really reject that. You are not. We don't maintain our salvation. We are saved by Christ alone. The question is, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you truly tasted and seen— and look, don't trust me. Just read. Here, here's my recommendation: If you're really open to what God's word has to say about this, and especially if you're listening to my voice and you're living like the devil, thinking that you're going to be saved, I really encourage you to turn off this debate. as, soon as you're done, go read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. Go read his brother named John, I mean uh, named James. Read the book of James. So read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Read James, and um something else I was going to say. Well, Really, if you just read those two books, I think you'll be completely cleared up um, on this matter.
0: Thank you, JD, for your response. Uh, John, over to you. Go ahead.
2: Um, I I don't have a problem with any of that. I I, I understand what, uh, and I know this guy too, Aaron. Um, Of course, I don't believe someone has to stop sinning. Uh, Some people do. That's what they think repentance means. It's false. Uh, Again, it comes from metanoia, two Greek words there. Of course, meta means change. Noia means mind, a change of mind, a difference of mind. And of course, you got to look at the context to determine what the change of mind is about. It's not always in regards to sin. Uh, It can be in regards to to anything else, depending on the context. Uh, You know, we were talking about salvation. You change your mind from unbelief to belief. You change your mind about, you know, being in a sinful state. You want to be saved. That's a change of mind and in some places of course it can be synonymous depending on the context but anyway that's i know that's another discussion but but no i don't believe someone has to have good works to get saved or to stay saved uh we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ plus nothing else prior to salvation or after salvation so that's my take
1: awesome appreciate
0: it john jd get the last word
1: no i think i just i love what johns out there i mean that's that's the gospel and, and i and i do think one, um, I guess one little side note is, and I appreciate this because I have not heard John accuse me, well, maybe he has, uh, maybe I've just, right, of, of works-based salvation. Um, but, um, you know, I think in the end, we primarily hold to the same thing, right? We're just kind of shooting past each other. I think the, where the rubber meets the road is that I think John, in the end, would declare someone who has absolutely no works as possibly still being saved. And the Bible was 100% clear that that person is not saved.
0: All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for your responses. Lots of great questions and lots of great uh, engagement from the both of you, JD and John. So next question is a question for both. So this one comes in from Kevin's Biblical Discussions. Thank you so much. And he asks for an exegesis of Ephesians 2.10. And I can put that up on screen for you, gentlemen for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Maybe we can start with John since J.D. has started with the last couple questions and then go from there.
2: Okay, of course, again, you know, look at the prior verses. Now, there we have Ephesians 8, 9, and 10, and I've preached on this passage several times. The immediate context, of course, begins with verses 8 and 9, and we all know that, where it says we're saved by grace through faith, It's the gift of God, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. Um, And, of course, that's self-explanatory that we're saved by grace through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't have to do anything to earn it. Therefore, we can't do anything to lose it. It's grace. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. I heard one um, uh, comparison there or one analogy about it, an acrostic. But now where it says, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Of course, salvation is God's. Uh, idea, it's his work, it's his plan from beginning, middle to end. Now, where it talks about unto good works, God hath prepared that we should, there's that, ver- that word should walk in them. It doesn't say that we will or we must. It says we should, which means we have a choice to do that. And now again, I'm not, don't, please don't accuse me of saying that I don't believe in good works, that I don't believe in living holy, that I don't believe in rights. I preach that all the time. I do believe that. So that's a that's a, a typical misnomer or a logical fallacy, a straw man to say that I don't believe that works are important. I do. Um, I know I'm going to have to stand before Christ one day and give an example or give a, a, an account rather of what how I live. But it says here we should walk in them. Now notice should walk. He's talking about discipleship there. We're saved, verses 8 and 9, and we should have discipleship. I'm not discounting that. We should do it. These are things we should do. And if not, then yeah, we go back and say, okay, did I believe in Christ? Okay, I should be doing this. I know I'm supposed to do this. Sometimes I don't. It doesn't mean I'm not saved. So we we should walk in good works. So that's kind of the quick version. Um, If they meant by if they want any Greek, I don't have my Greek lexicon pulled up where I could uh, parse any Greek words. But that's just sort of the quick (laughs) quick end of it. (laughs)
0: No worries. No worries. You did great. Thank you so much, John. And uh, J.D., over to you.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad this came up because I've been wanting to go to this passage and, and John's uh, exegesis of it. I, the, the passage, I mean, this is a whole long context, but really it's Ephesians 2 eight For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, so that you should not mm-hmm. boast. And so the passage begins, we're talking about why you have been saved. It's based on grace through faith, not of works, but to crowd out the antinomians who say, okay, the works are not important. He immediately says, what is the purpose of your salvation? You are not saved by works, but you're saved for good works, right? And that's exactly where verse 10 goes on. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the good works don't come on the front end, i.e. the salvation part. They're part of the back end, uh, namely the uh the result of that salvation and that's the entire argument that you were not saved uh by good works but you are saved for good works but john thinks that this passage actually is teaching that you don't need to have good works but it, it, that's not what the passage means he he puts a whole lot on the word should well be careful doing that because all you had to do uh, and, and again i'm not gonna i can do greek and i'll do a little greek here but don't trust my greek just go to biblehub.com put ephesians 2 10 in and read all the translations and guess what many don't have the word should many don't have the word i do not lean too hard on a greek word that might not even mean what you think it means many for example the new american standard version so that's not the elect standard version of esv it says that they would walk in them so don't lean too hard on that now why does it say would instead of should because that subjunctive can have the meaning of would or should or might and have all of that. So you don't want to press too deeply on that. Now, John might be right, but he might be wrong. So again, you just don't want to be pressing on that uh, passage uh, too uh, too much. I think here's the reason that the subjunctive there actually is communicating. The purpose of Christ creating you as his new creation is for good works. That's the pur- The should there is communicating purpose and it's not communicating uh, this kind of like uncertainty, like who knows if you follow good works? I mean, you ought to do it, but who knows? That's not the context. I just, I just invite people to read it. Is the context. We don't know if you have good works. No, that's alien to the context. John is putting that in the context instead of extrapolating it from the context.
0: All right, gentlemen. Very good. Thank you for the uh, exegesis from the both of you on that important uh, passage, of course. So here's the next one. Yeah. Um, To mix it up, let's see. We'll get a question here from, I believe this one is for you. Okay, here's one for you, John. So this one um, from Jesus is coming. Thank you so much for the question. Question for John. SFT, would you think that false teachers would have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before leaving righteousness from salvation?
2: I'm not sure I understand what, what what he's asking there. Um, would you think that falls to you? What is. We have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior before leaving righteousness from salvation. I don't understand. It
0: could, Yeah, it could possibly. If 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 Jesus is coming, it's still in the chat and you want to reword your question. Um, Because that one does seem a little bit... Uh, uh, it's a little bit confusing. I'm confusing. not sure. I'm
2: not understanding what he's asking
0: exactly. He's got one here. Let's see if this one... um we can understand a little better. So he says, Is it likely that false teachers in one time accepted Jesus Christ and got saved before becoming false teachers? So maybe that's kind of clarifying it. Like, were these false prophets maybe saved and then became a false prophet? Or I'm only guessing at um, this point. So,
2: I mean, I, we, we don't know. It's possible, but we don't know. I mean, the text doesn't say that. I mean, it doesn't say that I know anywhere it says a false prophet gets saved that I can think of off the top of my head.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate it, John. And uh, you know, Jesus is coming. If you're in the chat and you want to clarify your your cra- your question prior, feel free to do so.
1: Uh JD, was there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I think this is actually what he meant by the first question, which it was kind of difficult to understand. Um, I, I think that I think the free grace position is the worst position, to be honest. Um, it, so it's one thing, and what I'm specifically talking about is uh perseverance of the saints. It's it's one thing for you to I uh, think you could lose your salvation, right? You're you're at least taking the passages seriously that you must persevere to the end, but I don't think you're taking seriously or seriously enough the passages that say he began a work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So you're not take you're you're taking the warnings seriously, but you're not taking the promises seriously, um, you know. But th- I think that the issue. So I I guess what I'm trying to say is I would rather somebody take the warning seriously. Um, and mistake the promises, than to take the promises seriously and mistake the warnings. So it seems to me that John has no warnings. He he rightfully understands uh, that, I think, that you're going to endure at the end, but then he ignores the warnings or reinterprets them in such a way where he's arguing that you don't have to persevere. You can actually just do anything, and you'll be fine. Um, he, he, Christ might kill you, but you're ultimately going to be eternally secure. And I think that's such a dangerous position. I think it's... The healthy position to hold to is that um, that you must endure to the end and that Christ will uh, certainly cause you to endure to the end. And that's my position. So I think that 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 allows me to take the promises and the warnings uh, equally seriously without having to reinterpret either.
0: All right. I appreciate that, J.D. John, we'll give you the last word since the question was for you.
2: Okay. Uh, first of all, that's a straw man and a misnomer. I never said that it doesn't matter how we live. And I said that at the first part of my opening statement, it does matter how we live. Free grace does not teach uh, that how you live is not important. I know people that are free grace that live holier than most Baptists, And I have a Baptist background, you know, and I know people that are Baptists that, that live like the devil. So I don't teach that. I don't believe that. I think you should be able to live holy and righteous. So to say that I that I'm teaching that is is a straw man. It's a complete straw man fallacy. It's a misnomer. I don't believe that. I've never said that. I don't state that. I don't imply that. So I'll leave it at that.
0: Okay, gentlemen. Thank you so much. This next question is a question for both, and so um, I guess. The last question that was for the both of you, I think John, if I remember correctly, started. So maybe for this one, we'll have JD start. So Doki Doki Bible Club, thank you so much. And he asks, how many steps would you say are in the process of regeneration of the spirit?
1: Yeah, this is a difficult question. I mean, yeah. even in uh, John chapter three, it talks about the the spirit coming in a mysterious way. And it, even the whole idea of regeneration is an, an, an analogy Uh, uh, of what's going on exactly. You know, the Spirit comes and what's happening is hard to discern. Um, Bottom line is that uh, regeneration happens prior to salvation. It changes the heart, changes the disposition, uh, causes a person to be a new person. So exactly, you know, how much of the convicting work of the Spirit and uh, the gifting of faith and all this other stuff, how much of that is actually part of the work of regeneration or not, you know it's it's very challenging to know. Bottom line is, I can just tell you when regeneration ends. Oh, um, you know regeneration begins when the Holy Spirit starts working on you at some point. Um, th- that part is a little confusing to me, but it certainly ends when you become a child of God. Once you become a child of God, once someone has confessed that Jesus is Lord and um, they're converted, then then the process of regeneration has ended. Thank you so much,
2: JD John. Over to you. I don't know if I would say there are steps to salvation because then you, you get into works like the church of Christ. They believe, for example, you got to repent, you got to confess, you got to be baptized. Oh, by the way, you got to believe. And some of them even tell you, you have to do good works. So there's five things. So I don't believe, you know, you got to have all these different steps as far as what we have to do. All we have to do is believe. And then what Christ does is what he does. Now, if you want to narrow it down to you get convicted of your sins, you, um, you know, feel bad about them, whatever, you know, God does a work. We don't see it visually, so we don't totally see it visually. But I would say there are not steps to that. I think there's just one thing we have to do is believe and trust in Christ 100%. And he does what he does. He saves us. He gives us a new heart. I believe that. But I don't believe regeneration precedes faith. That's another discussion. I believe faith precedes regeneration. There's many verses that support that. Uh, I know that's a typical Calvinist uh, version. I believe I, I don't uh, subscribe to that. So faith precedes regeneration. Um, but I know sometimes the Calvinists say, oh, no, God's going to give you that. You got to no, know we have a choice. We have a free will. We can do that. Uh, but, I mean, that's, that's probably another that's another debate. Maybe we could debate that at a different time. But uh, So I don't think there's steps to it. Um, I just think God does what he does. We believe in him, and he gives us the promise of everlasting life.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for answering that question. Time has flown by. I got to start wrapping it up here. So to anybody in the chat whose question I didn't get to, I do still want to thank you though for sending in your question. We are at the two and a half hour mark. And so we'll wind it down here with one, maybe two more questions depending. So this one comes in from Honesty Angel. Thank you so much for your question. Another question for both. So she asks, um, at Stand For Truth, is entering and inheriting the kingdom the same thing? and um i guess this time we can have you john we can have you start
2: uh, some people believe they are but you have to look at those passages john 3 for example jesus talks about entering the kingdom and there are several passages uh throughout the gospels where jesus talks about entering the kingdom um i don't think there's it depends on the context that you're looking at you know you can't i'll just assume they're synonymous um 1 Corinthians 6, I believe it's Galatians 5, talks about those who practice these things should not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, from what I understand, now there's different interpretations on that passage. Some people say you lose your salvation. Some people say you never had it. Arminian Calvinist. Uh, but I believe I have a third, I think there's a third inter- interpretation that, excuse me, where it says you won't inherit the kingdom of God so is referring to rewards. Now that's the typical free grace uh, uh, view, which I hold to at this point. So I can illustrate it this way. There's a difference in entering a house and inheriting a house. For example, I inherited my grandmother's house. I'm trying to sell at this point. Uh, But somebody else that wants to come buy it can enter it, but they didn't inherit it. So I see a little bit of a difference. Now, again, there may be different contexts where they are synonymous. I I don't know about that. But from what I've understood, there are differences. But that's my answer on that. Hope that helps. Yes, thank you very much, John. Uh,
0: J.D., over to you.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, fundamentally, the, the the idea of entering and inheriting are not quite the same thing. Entering uh, obviously means to go inside of something in, in some way. Inheriting means to receive. But I think uh, a few I'll just give one example where you can see that they can, in fact, refer to the same thing. So imagine if I have uh, a sum of money in a chest and I say that, you know, if if you love me, then you will enter into the chest or enter into the safe. Um, or I say, if you love me, that you will inherit the safe. Obviously, entering into the safe would be entering in to take possession of the money in the safe. Uh, the same inheriting is the same kind of concept. So just because uh, there are two different verbal ideas doesn't mean that they don't speak to the same fundamental underlining reality. And I think they do. Um, the, 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 the way I always tell people is to compare scripture with scripture. So are there any other passages that possibly say that the unrighteous will not inherit or will not? end up in heaven. Is there any other passages like that? And there's dozens and dozens of passages. So then why would we uh, try to interpret, you know, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 or some other passages in in, in some other way? The reason seems obvious to me is because you can't have the passage saying what it says because it directly contradicts free grace theology. I think free grace theology has to go instead of ingenious interpretations. Let me say one other thing. It'd be one thing if the passage says, um, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. See, then I'd be definitely be like, okay, yeah, that could definitely refer to uh, rewards. But it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So To receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God is one thing. To not inherit the kingdom of God is another. I mean, what in the world? They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then, what is this, like, slavery in heaven? I mean, are these going to be, like, heavenly slaves or something? I don't understand. If they're going to and i don't understand how they could be in heaven glorified reigning with christ and not inherit the kingdom it just doesn't make sense to me all
0: right jd thank you uh, john thanks for that response okay let's let's do one last question here is um okay we'll we'll wrap it up with this Because again, time has flown by. We've still got over 100 people in the chat. John, JD, you did a great great job tonight. And um, to the both of you, I I do thank you so much for being generous with your time. I know you both are extremely busy. So again, I do want to express my gratitude. So here we go. Last question, the Layman Seminary question for you, JD. How do you persevere until the end if God kills you for sin?
1: Let me just say this. If there's anybody who uh, has a question that they wanted to ask me or something, um just feel free to go to exploring theology i'll put a comment there and uh, i can make a video for you uh, like i said i've been kind of on a hiatus so this will maybe bring me back <laughs> and i always try to be a servant to people anyway so the question is how do you uh preserve until the end until god uh if god kills you for uh, kills you for sin well again how did the, i think it was on this channel don wasn't it didn't we do a, a perseverance of the saints debate right yeah the you debated time? uh
0: A.K. Richardson. Yeah, A.K.
1: That was yeah, a fun debate. Um, and one of the things that he criticized me on was that all the passages I used talked about how God was faithful and not us. And I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> the point is not my trust is in me. My point is my trust is in God. And so how do you persevere if God kills you? Because that's God's means of causing you to persevere. I mean, God sees you. Think about this. God sees you about to jump off the cliff and he warns you, if you jump off the cliff, you're going to hell. Right. But he tells you if you do not jump off the cliff and if you die before you jump off the cliff, if you make it uh, to the heavenly gate, namely death, before you jump off the cliff, you're going to heaven. So, you know, there's multiple ways to keep you off the cliff. There's just sitting you down and giving you a pep talk and convincing you there's tripping you. And sometimes they're just taking you out. But either way, as long as you don't jump off the cliff, you go to glory. Right. As long as you, as a Christian, persevere to the end, do not abandon the faith, you are going to glory. And so I'm not saying God does this, but he very well could. This very well could be one of the ways—and by the way, I pray for these kind of things. If if that—I'll just say this. If God knows that if I stay on this earth for 10 more days, I'm going to hell because I'm going to abandon the faith because X, Y, and Z is going to happen, please kill me, Lord. And please kill anybody else. Because heaven is that great, if you don't, if you question that, she says, "What is it profit a man? They gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul." God kill me any moment if that is that's what it takes to get me to heaven.
0: Thank you, JD and John. Over to you for your response.
2: Um, it's, of course, I don't believe in perseverance of the saints. I've, I've said that before. It's, it's a Calvinistic doctrine, and I just don't believe in it because it looks back to works. I know JD said he didn't, he didn't look back, but. That's what the majority of Calvinists believe, and I'm not. I don't think I'm misrepresenting Calvinism because I've studied. I got a whole ton of books on it, but most Calvinists look back on their lives if they live long enough to get to the end of their lives and say, "Oh, I didn't persevere." But according to, that, to answer his question, how do you persevere to the end of end end of God or what? Wait, I can't read it here. How do you persevere to the end if God kills you for sin? Okay, it's supposed to be if instead of of. Um, well, the thing about it is, yeah, I mean. You could ask the question, well, what's the end? Uh, JD's talking about, you know, sort of like, I guess I would sort of agree. What's the end? We don't know what the end's going to be necessarily. Somebody might live 38 years, 48 years, 50 years, 60, if you want to look at it that way. We don't know when none of us are going to go. God knows that. But I don't believe that it's necessarily perseverance. You know, uh, you just live as long as you live. Now, if you get in sin, God will take you out. So, you know Calvinists would say' it's perseverance. I would just say it's just chastisement, but that's my response on it anyway. Thank you very much, John. j d. you can have the final word?
1: No, I mean, God can do it as he wants to persevere. I guess my my final word would be, uh, I think we're when John says like this is a Calvinist doctrine, this is that, um look, I mean, you can call it whatever you want. The fact of the matter is, uh, well, I guess, I guess well, you know what? I guess to be fair to John, we do have a difference. John believes once saved, always saved. Once you're in, you can't get out. Doesn't matter what you do. I believe that you will persevere to the end and that you will not uh, live like the devil in between and uh, and you will never abandon your faith. So I, I was about to say this is just semantics and we're basically saying the same thing, but no, I really appreciate John for bringing this up. We are not saying the same thing. I utterly, categorically reject the notion that you can live like the devil and so still be saved that you can abandon the faith and still be saved. Um, I know John is saying that he's not telling people to live like the devil. He's telling them you ought not to live like the devil, but you can. And uh, I, I think that's just awful. It's just awful. And <laughs> once again, I, please go read uh, Romans chapter uh, 6. Please read Romans 6 because it answers this very it answers this very question. Shall we sin to so that grace man again? By no means. And it answers that question and says absolutely, categorically, no. You can't do it. And if you do do it, I'm sorry. You're not going to lose. You're going to, you're not going to just lose rewards. You're going to find yourself in a lake of fire. Please don't do that.
0: All right, gentlemen. Well, that concludes the audience audience. question and answer. I do again want to thank everybody in the audience for, as usual, being so engaged in this important debate and sending in so many fantastic questions. Uh, This was a very enjoyable debate, and I'm very glad that we made it happen. Uh Pastor JD Martin and Reverend John Crawford. Again, I want to thank you both for your time. And uh why don't we just have some quick final words, final thoughts, if if you gentlemen ha- had that? Uh why don't we start with um John? John Crawford, thank you so much for doing this. Final thoughts, final words.
2: Uh yeah, let me just say, you know, a lot of people question why do we have these kind of debates? I've heard people you know, criticize debaters like us. And we do it for at least two reasons. Number one, to glorify God. That's number one. Number two it's to educate those that maybe don't understand what the views are. And hopefully it educates people to both views. And then they themselves can choose what view they feel is the closest to the scriptures. So don't take our words for it. Look what the scriptures say. You know, free grace, uh, lordship, all that. Just look what the scriptures say. Look what the scriptures say. so the, I, I would say that. So we, we that's the reason we do these debates and is to educate people to glorify God. Uh, and also maybe to learn, I'll add a third one, maybe to learn from each other. You know, uh, we can learn different things about each other because all free grace people don't even believe alike. I don't know if JD, you're aware of that. All free grace people, they don't even agree. You got extreme free grace. You got moderate free grace. Extreme free grace believes you don't have to repent. Moderate says maybe you do. Uh, some the extreme free grace says you don't have to make a free will choice, that Jesus doesn't give invitations. He does. You do have to make a free will choice to accept Christ. So, I mean, there's differences in even in the free grace camps. So even we don't all <laughs> get along on stuff. And then you have the free grace alliance and you have the grace evangelical society. They split. They're two different groups. So there's differences there. Just as there's differences within Calvinism, all Calvinists don't believe alike. That's why there's different You have hyper-Calvinists. You have what some call two, three, four-pointers, five-pointers. So there's differences. And so that's why we do these debates, discuss, debate, argue our differences, talk about where we uh, affirm the same thing, the foundations that we have. So, I mean, that's just kind of what I would say. So this has been great. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, Certainly, I hope uh, you guys have. And thank you, Donnie, for having me on. Um, it's been a long time coming. I've been waiting to do this for a while, but it just didn't work out till I could do it until now. So, uh, but I appreciate it very much. and Thank you guys for taking the time on your Friday night to do this.
0: All right. Thank you, Reverend John Crawford. Appreciate the final words. And you know what? It, it happened when it was meant to be, and it was worth the wait. It was definitely worth the wait. I've it got, was predestined. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was predestined to happen on this day. So
2: sorry, <laughs> <Sure, laughs> I couldn't resist.
0: Excited. I, hey, I love it. I appreciate the sense. Of, hey, laughter is the best medicine. So, you guys uh, have done a great job. And Pastor JD Martin, again, thanks for being here. Uh, final words, final thoughts.
1: Yeah, no, I uh, I just love being here, uh, Donnie. I, I love the channel. Um, I'm glad that I could be a little small part of it. Um, and, and it's just fun, you know. It's fun to do these things. And and I definitely agree, with John. I mean, um, I like these debates. I watch these debates. I I find them interesting, right? Um, and so I hope they can be a blessing to, uh, some people as I was preparing for this debate. Um, oftentimes I kind of sit back and, and ask myself, you know, well, what difference does it really make? And, and, uh, you know, you can hold to this side of the fence in and baptism or credo baptism or all mill or pre mill, and you can, you can hold them in an unhealthy way. You can hold them in a healthy way. And my main focus is primarily helping people hold doctrine in a healthy way, uh, instead of a way that's hurtful. Um, I struggled with this one though, because, uh, when it comes to free grace, it's real hard to hold this healthy. I mean, I think John holds it the healthiest way possible. Uh, yeah, you can live like the devil and, uh, still be saved, but I don't think you should. That's the healthiest way to do it. But, uh, I think that's just so completely, utterly destroys the warnings of God. And it takes the warnings of God, um, from warning you not to go to hell and transforms them to warning you about Lamborghinis in heaven. Um, and I think that's just, just awful. Um, and so uh, I think John is a good Christian man, and I think he believes what he believes, and that's fine. And and one is right and one is wrong, and that's okay. But uh, I really do think anybody who is uh, inf- influenced by free grace really needs to ask themselves, uh, are you really taking the warnings of God seriously? Are, are you really heeding God's warnings about what will happen to you if you— Uh, live a completely unrepentant godless life and and that's just my encouragement to you to ask yourself that question and and open the bible afresh and and look at those passages again and say yeah i know i'm i can make these passages not say that but am i doing that and just 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 ask yourself that and uh, let the spirit work
0: all right thank you for those uh those final words final thoughts uh jd and also john Again, gentlemen, thank you so much for this debate. Your relevant links are in the description box. So to anybody in the audience that wants to see more from these uh, from the debaters tonight, check that out. And as always, I typically stick around for a few minutes just to go over some reminders and announcements. So I will let these uh, these debaters out. Uh, you've given us three hours of your time. So again, thank you so much, J.D. and John. Uh, God bless you both.
1: God bless. Thanks for having us. Thank hard. you too much,
2: Johnny. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again soon, man. My thank pleasure. Thank you, J.D. All
0: right. There we go. And as I like to say, I look forward to saying it. another one of books. So over 200 debates now and over 10,000 subscribers. So I do want to thank everybody for their support. Uh, You know, thank all my uh, subscribers here for always being so engaged in these debates, sending in a, a ton of fantastic questions, the super chats, the super stickers, thank you so much. And um, Cheryl, sister, yes, after show. So there's the after show link. Uh, it's not going to be, I think, until about an hour, which works, because I can go relax, have some food, you know, refill my coffee, and I'll definitely join as well. We've been doing uh, weekly Soteriology panel debates. And, um, I'm 99% certain that, uh, tomorrow night will be our next one. There's a few verses that, that I'm kind of, uh, debating, you know, w- within myself, the old man, the new man are debating what the passage is going to be. So I'll announce it, uh, tomorrow, Elizabeth, my, my pleasure. Thank you, Donnie and all Doki doki, $5 super chat. Thank you so much. And, uh, <laughs> it's the angel says tell me the future yes the future is bright the future is bright so this was a ton of fun this debate and the fun continues so here's the next several debates coming up uh many debates in our uh 2022 evolution debate challenge series the requests keep coming in i almost can't keep up gonna have to hire uh a, a standing for true a donnie b 2.0 to help me keep up with these requests but seriously i love it you know keep sending in the requests because uh, we want the summer of all debates. And I think it already has been the summer of all debates. We've pretty much had a debate almost every single day when we consider the, um, the debate marathons that we've been doing. So we got uh, Kent Hovind and James W. That is going to be on the 19th. And then we've got uh, T-Jump and uh, Dr. Dino. This is going to be their epic rematch. This will be a testable prediction specifically with the James W. one being on the um, hominid fossil record. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be awesome. Also, I've been doing an End Times uh, Theology series. Okay, I've done four episodes. So if you have not yet seen them or if you're not yet caught up on them, please check them out. You know, you can find them in a playlist section or also just in the most recent videos. And um, I believe it's the 28th. Uh, so Dr. Ken he'll be here. He's written a book, you know, what on earth is is about to happen for heaven's sake. And so he's going to be here and we're going to discuss post-tribulation rapture versus pre-tribulation rapture. But uh, it's also going to be an open mic. So what I'm going to do, it's going to be like a live call-in show like I did uh, about a month ago. We had Kent on. We did the geologic column. And after his presentation and our discussion, I opened it up for about an hour and people came in. We had some friendly discussions, friendly uh, mini debates. We're going to do the same here, guys. So make sure to mark that off on your calendar because I promise you this one is going to be epic. We've got some... uh, english translation bible translation debates coming up this one's going to be epic eddie from the brute facts podcast and nick sayers both very knowledgeable both very well spoken and both well studied on this topic so i promise you this is going to be uh you know a a debate to remember too heavyweight so is the kjv the only accurate english translation um a debate coming up in August. I just booked Matt Slick and Stanley Terry. Was Jesus fully God and fully man during his earthly ministry? This one is going to be... I'm looking forward to this one. This will be Matt Slick's 10th time here, I believe. So he's always been very generous with his uh, with his time. It's probably... Um, it's probably a competition between, it's between Matt Slick and Kent, you know, who's debated here the most. So, uh, they both have been a huge blessing. Uh, Charles Jennings, the one who, uh, he's got the after show tonight at 1am EST. He's going to be debating soon in about 15 days, more or less. Um, and David Preston, both fantastic debaters both again. I mean, we're, we're getting some really, um, Some really awesome debates, like just many, main events all in the same week, really. So Salvation in the Old Testament, Faith Alone, or Faith Plus Works. And they're going to be having more of a two-parter. So there's going to be this one at the end of July here. And then at the end of August, they're going to be debating James 2. And uh, we know that James 2 is oftentimes brought up in these uh, soteriology soteriology debate so that one will be awesome Uh, cj cox is going to be here a few times actually in the next month or two so again you know the the summer of debate so cj cox versus david preston Are modern english translations dangerous and untrustworthy cj cox uh, if you look at the event section because what i'm showing you here guys just a snapshot of the overall uh, content that we do have scheduled because we're a full-time ministry so we're putting out full-time content And uh, C.J. Cox will be here debating uh, Will Duffy on open theism. This will be our first open theism debate, and I'm pumped. And then also at the end of August, uh, we just confirmed the details. C.J. Cox and Turretin Fan are going to be debating uh, conditional immortality or annihilationism versus eternal conscious torment. And I got to say, I am pumped for that one. And of course, last couple, I'll go over a uh, couple more debates just set in the events section of the channel for the Evolution Debate Challenge series. So how are whales and pine trees related? Um, Daria Bloodworth and Ken Hoven, of course, they're going to be debating. And the other one um, that I booked is in the events section. So please just make sure to check that out. And... Um, make sure to you're up to date, you know, subscribe, like share this around because we've got debates, interviews, we've got so much. And honestly, Angel, I appreciate that. Uh, She says, I will never let you retire. Just make sure I'm always uh, well stocked up on coffee and I will never retire. I'm too addicted to this, you know, uh, a debate addict. and, And thank God there's so many other debate addicts out there as well. Um, Let's see. Just looking at the chat here. And um, honestly, <laughs> have have they beat your debate record? Oh, my personal debates? Yeah, I think uh, formal debate wise, I've done about 98. So I'm close to 100. But if we actually consider panel debates... Open mic debates, impromptu debates. I'm probably over like 200, but uh, formal debates, yeah, about 98. So, oh, th- you know what? That reminds me, I do have a couple set. So, um, I was supposed to debate Heffy KC last week or next week. Uh, maybe he'll uh change his mind since he did agree and then uh, he's running after he spent weeks saying I'm running, <laughs> so you can't make this stuff up. Maybe he's just trolling. Uh, But I do have uh, two science-based debates uh, scheduled tentatively for next month, one on genetic entropy and then one on uh, endogenous retroviruses. So lots to look forward to, guys. Uh, Cheryl, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Sister, thank you so much to all the mods in the chat. You guys are doing a great job. You know, you guys are doing a great job during these uh, lively debates. Um, All right. Well, you know what? I think that's pretty well it that comes to mind. Uh, like subscribe, share around this content, share around this debate. This one was a ton of fun. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. And, uh, tomorrow we should be doing our, uh, next episode in our, uh, soteriology panel debate series and Charles Jennings, he's got an after show in about an hour, so it should still be, uh, pinned. So please check that out. Subscribe to Charles. If, if you can, he's putting out some great material. And uh, until we meet again, standing for truth is out. God bless all.